Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason. It's a pretty aggressive interpretation of the cry it out philosophy about sleep training to just be <laughs> right. like, well, uh, I put her down in the bed and now, now I'm going to drive my truck into a spaceship. And by internet thought leader and investor, M.G. Siegler. All right, I've caused a rift. I like this. We tackle Paul Muad'Dib himself, Timothy Chalamet's very first film, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. We discuss the dangers and responsibilities of being a parent. Jason gives a four-part symposium on the physics of Interstellar, and we consider just how alike Christopher Nolan and Denny Villeneuve truly are. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. And now, without further ado, Interstellar. Guys, I'm like, I'm freaking out. I'm very excited. I'm very excited about this one. Some weeks, some weeks we have to fake it. This one, we don't have to fake it. <laughs> I've been excited on every movie we've done, but this is like, this is, this was a special level for sure. I've been, ex- I've been excited about every movie we've done until I watch them. And then some of them just like, like sometimes the movie actually could be a decent movie, but I'm just like, I don't really have anything unique to add to this discourse. Sure. But this one, I have some things to add to the discourse. I'm ready to discourse on this fucking interstellar. Um, I was so hardcore that I took 14 pages worth of notes on my, that's great. Uh, <laughs> on your remarkable, remarkable tablet thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Single spaced or double spaced handwritten. It's all, you can see it. Yeah. It's handwritten. That's great. I tried doing that. Uh, just like plot points. Nothing. I, I got a remarkable as well for taking notes on movies for Dune pod. And Does it work? it's a great device actually, but, uh, it is a good device. It just works better for me to do it on my phone because I like add links from the got internet. It. I'm doing this on my, uh, you know, I was supposed to go to the convention, but the convention got canceled. So, you know, mm. I at least got mm. a Joe Biden 46 notebook. Did you uh, get, did you get the bomber jacket? I did not get the bomber jacket. Should have, should have got You the had to give jacket. more money. <laughs> did not work hard <laughs> enough. <laughs> Nas- you know, national uh, finance chair, but you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, I just want to start with a quick special announcement uh, because we've had a number of new listeners, um, especially coming off the Big Lebowski episode that we had, um, and we're going to get a bunch more um, because you know we've got you know, you know internet legend MG Siegler. This is uh, it. This, this is the, pushing us over the top, baby. Right, you guys should retire after this. We're going to get yeah. the MG bump. Um, I just want to make a special announcement and say you do not need to like Dune to listen to, po- to Dune <laughs> we, may, we maybe should have titled the podcast something else if, uh, if we were really going to have to insist on that point. <laughs> exactly. So much. I did listen to the, the Saka Lebowski one where he discloses yeah. that he's never seen Dune, um, yeah. which is pretty, pretty fun. I think he failed at watching the trailer. I think he attempted and failed to watch the trailer <laughs> right. for the he Lynch was, Dune. Is, yeah, he's like something like, I couldn't believe so-and-so was in this. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Sting. The guy, yeah. the guy like, he didn't, know, yeah. he didn't <laughs> know Sting was in it or Cal <laughs> McLaughlin. Right, right. I just want to be clear. We don't care if we you don't care. like Dune, if you've never seen Dune, if you have no experience with it. Yeah. We talk about a bunch of movies that you probably have seen and that you probably like. And so we just want you to know, um, we want you to come check it out. We're going to have a good time and you can have a good time even if you don't care about Dune. Yeah. And I would go even further to say, if you hate Dune, this is a good podcast <laughs> for you because yeah, uh, right. I like I like haters. I want people with with strong opinions 
Uh, and if that opinion is that Dune sucks, then you're more than welcome here. Nice. Nice. Well, MG, welcome to the pod. Yeah. MG Siegler, it's great to see you. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. We booked this a long time ago. I know we did. You had me pick like uh, a date that was so far in the future where it felt a little <laughs> like Interstellar. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was like, okay, I'll commit to this. I really need to set a reminder though to make sure that like that's right. I'm in the country. I'm somewhere that I can do this. So yes, yeah. I'm glad it worked. Well, we are so happy to have you. And we are talking Christopher Nolan's 2014 sci-fi epic Interstellar. Mm. And we have a lot to say uh, about this movie. Um, so just some quick housekeeping. Next week on Dune Pod, it got delayed uh, when we put Lebowski in the lineup. But we are finally getting back around to John Borman's oh, God. Excalibur. <laughs> we got to find something else to delay it then. Got to find some other reason to delay the movie. It's two hours and 20 minutes. Is it really? It has a oh. real intermission. Wow. Oh. But Patrick Stewart, Liam Neeson, Gabriel Byrne, um, Helen Mirren. What is it streaming on? It's streaming for free on Tubi, and it's available for rental on all major platforms. Yeah. So really excited. It's a great movie uh, from 1982, I believe, or 81. And joining us is Brian Mosley, CEO and founder of Warhorn, uh, the online gaming uh, scheduling platform, and my former Dungeon Master. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. For what game? <laughs> D&D. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. And, and various other various other things. So so stay tuned. Next week is going to be an epic one. Uh, that is a, a truly epic film. The soundtrack's incredible. And John Borman is a, is a great director. The director of Zardoz. This was his follow-up. Yes, the director of Zardoz <laughs> is not our guest next week. But um, yeah, after his rousing success at Zardoz, he went and uh, made a movie with the tagline, Forged by a God, Foretold by a Wizard, Found by a King. <laughs> Excalibur. Yes. And and again, we talked about it briefly last time. After Zardoz, he attempted to do an adult version of Lord of the Rings. He tried to get the rights yeah. to that. He wanted Frodo to sleep with Galadriel. Like that was the kind of thing that he was going for. <laughs> he tried to do a softcore per- version of Lord of the Rings. Exactly. And that didn't that work. And so he, he rolled that straight into Excalibur. So yeah. uh, that is next week on Dune Pod. Now... Let's get into Dune News. Would you like to know more? Dune News. There's no news. Okay, great. We don't, we gotta, we gotta, <laughs> we got we no gotta time. save as much time possible for Interstellar. There's nothing no time. On. The movie's coming. It's going to be great. It'll be great. Moving on. Yeah. MG, do you have a history with Dune? So I have a funny history with Dune that I think you guys will appreciate because I was trying to think back to it. Um, so it's from my childhood, it's from all, all of our childhoods, but I was very young. So I was born in 81. So Dune came out in 84, right? So I was, yep. I was three. So I was obviously too young to see it in theaters or anything like that. <laughs> Your parents um, brought you to the theater at age three. No, it's even, <laughs> it's even better than that. Uh, my first um, memory of Dune and really the way that I got introed, my grandparents bought a coloring book of Dune. Yes, yes. And oh, I found it yeah. on the internet. Oh, yeah. Uh, as yeah, you can yeah. do for many things these days, apparently. Yes. And it, it's like, it's going for $260 oh on my some God. A books I found it on, A B E books. Yeah, that's where you get all the good stuff. And it's it's an orange coloring book. 
Uh, I can send it to you so you can put it in the show notes or whatnot. Please, but, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like this was my memory, <laughs> and my grandparents got this. For, so when I would go and stay in my grandparents' house in, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, I would sleep over, and I would have this Dune coloring book, which I would look at, and I had no idea, obviously, what, what Dune was about. I just remember this like guy wearing like this face thing, and it was like, what what on earth is this? They clearly thought, I think they thought it was like Star Star Wars, basically. Right. Uh, and, yeah. you know, that it was, you know, sort of like a, a thing kids might like and, and, and whatnot. It reminds me of, um, sort of aside, and we don't want to go to a rabbit hole, but when I was very young also, um, when my parents would rent uh, videotapes back in the day at the yeah. local video store, uh, my mom once brought home a movie called Critters. I don't know if any no, of you... Oh, yeah. That's, no. a, that's, a, that's a terrible thing to bring to a child. That is a very <laughs> terrible thing to bring home to a child. It looks like from the cover, it could be a cute thing. It has like sort of a funny like tagline, I think. Vine. Yeah, it's like yeah. a Gremlins type thing. And no. <laughs> it was not like that at all. And, and that still has scarred a, a memory in my head. But so did this Dune coloring book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, once I found out what the situation was with Dune. So that was my entry into, that's this, great. <laughs> into this world. That's a great story. Shall we get into this? Please. All right. Let's do it. Interstellar is a journey across the deepest reaches of space between the stars and between a father and his daughter. In a not-too-distant future, Earth's ecology is in collapse and all life will be extinguished within just a few generations. Coop, a widower and former astronaut who dreamt of leaving Earth, struggles as a farmer raising his kids Tom and the precocious Murph. When an unexplained phenomena leads Coop and Murph to a military base, Coop is given the opportunity to leave his children behind to pursue a desperate quest to find a new home for humanity. Battling the hostile environments of deep space, his own teammates, and above all, the desperate passage of time he can never get back, Coop risks everything. Can he reach out through space and time, heal his daughter, and help humanity embrace a destiny that is interstellar? It's great. It's great. Good synopsis of this movie. Boom. That is good. Ooh, I had to write that in 10 minutes. I forgot to write it until just before we went on the air. So that was a. You write scramble. all of those yourself? You don't pull them from. Uh... No, those are. That's original. Wow. That's a, that's that original. Matt good. does that's a lot of work. I don't, I don't do very much. <laughs> Matt does a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I saw, I realized when we were prepping for this that I saw this movie in the theaters for sure. I believe I liked it. And then, like, for some reason, I just like quickly forgot it. Um, like I didn't forget it. Like I remember what happened in the movie and I remember like some of the iconic scenes and stuff, but it didn't leave like a lasting impression on me. Mm. And, uh, I was very excited to revisit it and be reminded of how excellent a movie it, it really is. Cause it's like, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good one in like the sci-fi canon. It's definitely Christopher Nolan's like shot at making 2001, which is my favorite movie. Um, and I was, I was definitely watching it on as like, with like that sort of like okay he's going for it this dude for because he got to make a bunch of really successful batman movies gets to make super expensive ridiculously like just over over the top effects uh super nerdy fucking movies uh and thank god for that so yeah yeah and matt i'm I'm curious, like, because I think if I have it right, because we picked this so long ago, but you didn't love Interstellar, is that right? When you first saw it, is is that correct? 
Yeah, so I I thought it was it was really cool and and moving, um, and there were aspects of it that I thought were really fantastic. But for some reason, the overall connection of it, um, I sort of had an idea of what was happening as it was going, um, and I don't know, it just didn't quite click for me. Going back and watching the whole thing from the top, knowing everything that was going on, definitely helped me to pick up more things that were laid in a in a really effective way. Um, and then just the emotional core on it. So it was definitely rising in stars as the rewatches uh, were going through over the last couple of days. Mm. Yeah, that's um, the thing that that resonated with me sort of watching. I, I don't think I had seen it. So I had bought it when it came out like on digital on iTunes, um, you know, whenever that was, because it came out in 2014, right? So it probably came mm-hmm. out in 2015 at some point uh, on digital. And so I bought, bought, purchased it immediately pretty much when it came out. Um, but I don't think I'd rewatched it in maybe since then. So it's been a number of years. And yeah. the things that stuck out to me, well, at the very highest level were one, I do think it ages very well, but yeah. it's also, it's sort of like ages personally for me in a weird way because like, right. obviously I did not have kids when uh, right. when the movie came out and like the father-daughter relationship is core to this movie and that really <laughs> sort of has a whole new meaning that it did not when I saw it. MG like driving to work every day, he's doing the, the McConaughey tears in the truck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, and I also, I saw it in theaters twice. So I did like it when it, when it first came out, but more so because like I both like space movies and love Christopher Nolan. And I also just thought it was a great sort of one of the, the, you know, tentpole, uh, IMAX movies at the time. He had shot right. a bunch yeah. of it in IMAX. And so I saw it one of those times in, in the IMAX theater with, uh, I think in San Francisco at the Metreon with, um, I don't, I forget how much footage he actually shot, uh, for IMAX for this particular movie. A decent amount. Yeah. It's a pretty good amount. And it was a great experience. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of those things that when you point to like movie theaters going away and stuff, like you point to this as like one of the great counterexamples of why they can never go away. And certainly Nolan's obviously the, Shouldn't the go away. preeminent person of that. But uh, yeah, this it, I just love that movie and I saw it again. And I, I don't do that all that often these days anymore, uh, even back in 2014. But I did for this one because that's how much I, I liked it at the mm. time. But again, now I like it for almost different different reasons. It's weird. Totally. Yeah. All right, so let's get into this. Right out of the gate, you have the incredible Ellen Burstyn playing a really old woman, and she says, Oh, my dad was a farmer. Um, Like everybody else back then. Of course, he didn't start that way. And I went into this movie completely blind. Like, I knew it was a space thing. I knew there was going to be some astronaut stuff and foreign vistas. To be talking about farming... And to be on the farm and then to have this documentary style with the different people talking and telling the stories, I was so just like struck. Yeah. And it's funny too, because like that looks like what, you know, one of the things about like shot in IMAX and it looks really good. And as loyal June pod uh, viewers will know, I recently upgraded my TV uh, so I could watch the 4k DVDs. Um, and this looks real fucking good in ultra high definition <laughs> Blu-ray. Uh, and like, so it was kind of a, like, but, but the first scene does not like the, the, the like grainy <laughs> video documentary stuff. I was like, what is this shit? Do I need to like turn off <laughs> motion smoothing or something? You turned off motion smoothing, right? You've already done that. <laughs> yeah. I already, okay. I already turned off motion smoothing, but like, then I remembered that like, um, 
uh, it was for effect. Yeah, I wasn't sure what was going on in the beginning. Like, you know, is it like a Saving Private Ryan thing where it's in the future right. and, you know, we're, we're looking back? And, and it's a very interesting way to kick off a movie like this when everyone, like you said, assumes that it's a giant space, you know, cinematic masterpiece. And then we're back on the farm, you know, all of a sudden. We're farming, baby. Yeah, and the farm was the farm was beautiful, um, and, and we'll talk about that more as as we go. I do want to say the the first hook that we had for putting Interstellar on the list for Dune Pod is that this is Baby Timmy's first movie. Baby Timmy Chalamet, and I think he both stood on his own and also was doing a hell of a Casey Affleck, uh, you know, kind of younger uh, Casey thought. Affleck. Wait, yeah. I didn't. Re- it's his actual first movie. I didn't realize that. first movie. It's like his yeah. first wow. real movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. In it. I. I mean, I had forgotten that he was. You know, because obviously no one knew who he was at the time when we watched it. Right. And so. Right. Uh, so it's like, yeah, but obviously it's it's him, and uh, yeah, he does a good good Casey Affleck uh, <laughs> young impersonation, I guess. And he's he's not been canceled like a Casey Affleck. Timothy Chalamet remains un, un unblemished. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, it's sort of a sort of a weird topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, no, it's true. I, I and I I struggle with that as well. Though I thought Casey Affleck was amazing in this, but um, he's fine. Like it could have been as someone else. Like we didn't. Like it didn't matter. Like Casey Affleck was fine. <laughs> it's like, one of the few movies where I thought he actually looked like Ben Affleck when he has the beard. Like yeah. I, I very yeah. rarely sort of think that they look like one another for some reason, but I think that yeah. he did when he had the beard. And I don't know if it was like mm. sad Ben Affleck with the lattes or whatever as you see the pictures of. Yeah. <laughs> oh, with the tattoos and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, same, same. Um, so he's, he, but he does have, uh, Timothy has great presence. I thought, uh, you know, he has some intensity. He is not like a troubled youth. He is not making problems or anything. You know, he seems very much on board. Just wants to farm, man. <laughs> yeah, although he, he so he is giving Murph shit about her ghost. Dad, can you fix this? What the heck did you do to my lander? It was me. Let me guess. It was your ghost? I knocked it off my shelf. Keeps on knocking books off. No such thing as a ghost, dumbass. Hey. I looked it up. It's called a poltergeist. Dad, tell her. Wow, it's not very um, And so this is the, the first introduction that there's something going on there. Um, and when she says that she has a ghost, Coop then pushes her on science. Yeah. And this was the first push of like this notion of science versus your feeling and, and emotion and trying to balance those two things, which is the other central theme of the film, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good call. And the other thing that obviously I think has to resonate with all of us beyond the the, the child thing because i think we all had children since it came out so it's sort of an interesting angle since that, from that but uh the other part is of course the this they're going through a world changing event it's sort of you know it's it's not exactly clear what's going right. on right like they sort of explain it it seems like the you know a drought a famine of some sorts uh and they explain it a little bit more the blight as time goes on but it's also like they start putting on face masks and it, and it's sort of the face mask thing stood out. Yeah. The face, I was like, Oh yeah. Like it's time to mask up. I get you. I feel what, I feel what you're doing farmers in your truck. Yeah. And in California too, right. With like the, the shitty air and the, the fires, fires and everything yeah. that we've had over the past few years. It's like both of those things I'm watching this and I'm like, yeah, this is uh, this is a little more haunting than it, than it may have been. That's right. I totally felt that way too. No doubt. No doubt. Um, so we do kick into there's a he has a discussion with Murph about Murphy's law and you know her kind of uh, feeling bad about that um, and him saying that it's it's not that something bad will happen it's that anything can happen uh, but we transition from that straight into the drone capture scene. Whoa. Get in. Get in. Let's go. Chasing the drone through the cornfield. So 
this is the first one. This is out of all of the facts that came out of the behind the scenes that I watched today that raised the movie another star for me. They planted all of that corn. What? They grew all of that corn. That's just a boondoggle. Again, this is like, like, just, okay. <laughs> like, we'll like get some money laundering, <laughs> corn laundering. <laughs> they chose the location in Canada where they uh-huh. were filming. And it didn't have corn. And it didn't like, have corn because it's too corn. far north. So they planted corn. They got a farmer. There's one farmer nearby who does corn. Um, they planted it all. They got the corn guy. Okay, good. They, they waited for it <laughs> to grow up. They got the top up. corn guy in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> he was on a retainer of $18,000 an hour. Yeah. <laughs> They're able to shoot the scenes of chasing through with a helicopter and the, a real drone that was flying. Not a, not a CG drone. It's a real drone. Um, at the end of the movie, after it was over, they harvested the corn. Come and they on. sold it. And they made money. Oh my Come God. on, that, that was <laughs> that's great. <Yeah>. That's great. <laughs> that's good corn facts. <laughs> the thing that I liked about this is that it establishes one of the one of my favorite themes, one of my favorite tropes in science fiction, which is um, like shitty tech of the future. Yes. Like things, things yeah. are yes. things work. Like there's cooler stuff. Like there's solar panels that last ten years, but it's all beat up and shitty. Uh, and like you get this in like um, you get this in like the Firefly universe, yep. and you get this right. in like Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, and it's like it's just like it's like oh, it's like it's like they have cool stuff. Like the robots in this are super cool, but they're super fucked up. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really like that lived in. Like not pristine. Aliens was like kind of one of the first movies that ever did this. Like the the Nostromo mm. is like a cool ship, but it's like mm-hmm. all fucked up and dirty because um, mm-hmm. they've been living in it. And I took a note of that too because I think if I if I sort of free, freezed it right in the right place, I think it's a Dell Latitude laptop that they're using. Oh yeah, to exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Laptops it's like look a like big trash. black. Yeah, it's laptop. a honker. Yeah, honker. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the speaking of the Nostromo, uh, R.I.P. Yafet Kodo. Yeah, yeah, Fakoto or Austin Power. Yeah, one of the all time performances yeah. uh, on film. That one changed my life. He and Harry Dean Stanton down in the bowels of the ship of the, of the Strobo. I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation has never been on a, an equitable level. Well, you get what you contracted for, like everybody else. Yes, but everybody else. Yeah. Um, so they get the drone, and, and to your point, Jason, they do such great world building, again, super efficiently. Um, Tom asks how long the drone's been up there, and he says, Delhi missing control went down, same as ours, 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun detail. We don't need any more. Yeah, we don't know what crashed the systems, what was going on. We just know that there's a lot of scarcity. We go to the next scene, which is uh, him going to parent-teacher conferences and learning that Tom didn't score high enough to go to college. He's going to become a farmer. Um, and that Murph is getting in fights uh, over whether Apollo was real or not. Yeah. And so you have the teacher. Basically, this is like some MAGA shit going on here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> what What is the deal? I love that. This is, again, I think uh, the movie does really well on the world-building stuff. And they don't like they don't explain very much. Uh, they just give you enough so you get the vibe. You know what it is, and like it keeps it it keeps it moving. Um, and like again, like I think the two thousand and one parallel is important. Like like there's a conversation somewhere where Kip Thorne, the astrophysicist, was a producer and 
major consultant on the film talks about how like both of their favorite movies was like 2001 and they wanted things to be like unexplained in the movie. Mm. Uh, and I think they do a really good job with that on like the science fiction world building side. Yep. The place where I think they like kind of trip the line a little bit for me is on the thematic stuff. Like they really fucking beat you over the head with the Dylan Thomas poem and they beat you over that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the love is the fifth dimension stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. But like the, the, <laughs> the, the, like, the love is the fifth element <laughs> multipass. Lilu Dallas multipass. <laughs> they, but like the, the world building stuff is really, is really well done and super economical. Like they're not going to give you too much. Like if you want to go figure out more, you're going to have to go look for answers off the film. And it, I mean, and this plot point is a fascinating idea, right? And it's sort of, it's maybe top of mind too. Cause, uh, I, we happen to be watching For All Mankind. I don't know if you guys have watched that at all on, uh, I want to see on Apple TV+. Plus. Season 1, Episode 6. Oh, really? Yeah. I am digging it. It's good, and it gets better in Season 2. So it's at the we're at the penultimate episode last week, and now we're at the last one um, this week. It's better in Season 2. It's, it's good. I was surprised. I didn't think... I mean, I'm a, a Ronald Moore fan from Battlestar Galactica, but like... Of course. I thought... Uh, I don't know. I thought it would be Appleized and sort of hokey, and it ended up being really good. And I think it gets better, better with time. But I, I also bring it up because it sort of reminds me of this scene where it's like, what, what would actually happen if you were trying to do sort of the inverse of, of that, where you're trying to not inspire people to want to go to space because we just don't have the resources to do it? And it's like, yeah, if you say that, you know, the the whole moon landing was a hoax, like. You know, maybe in your like to your point, Matt, of the the mega uh, disinformation stuff. Like, you know, you could see a world in which that that something like that could happen. Could work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So we have, um, you know, he got this drone. It was from India, and he took it apart to help drive some of the combines that they have. Um, and this this was the one plot point that didn't really kind of connect for me. Um, all of these combines that they rebuilt are converging on the house but it's not quite clear what's going on or why that's happening. Like I'm assuming that's something to do with the anomaly. Is that? Yeah. So there's a gravitational anomaly at the house. And so that's causing all kinds of weird stuff. But gravity is different than magnetism, right? Is it though, Matt? Is it Uh, (laughs) like, you know, I mean like the, the, like one of the things that's going on. So I will say that the combine, like all the other anomalies, they actually do explain uh, what happened uh, in the Tesseract sequence at the end. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, whether it's him getting the coordinates to where NASA is or the books yep. falling right. off the shelf or the ticking of the watch, like all of those things are explained. Yep. Uh, the combines are not, um, but I think it's just meant to like sort of presage the... Something's going on. Something's going on. Right. And like the, like, yeah, it's like meant to be, I, I think it's like, I think it's meant to be, it's like messing with their their GPS. Right, something brought it out of the sky after ten or twenty years or whatever it was, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was it was looking for something, right? That was some, yeah, somebody, yeah. somebody threw that, and actually, that that helped me this time to be like, okay, there is a reason why that drone is here. Yeah, there is, there is more, more reason. There's funky um, shit happening at the house. So they go to uh, the baseball game, and they, you know, in the middle of the game, everybody turns and sees the stand, the sandstorm wall just coming at them, and it's just a massive, uh, you know, superstorm. To me, you guys were talking about this a little bit earlier, being haunting. The thing that I took away from this film is we spend a lot of time talking about climate change as this existential threat, but we always think about it as a future threat that you know hopefully we can avert. This is like this passed through so well the concept of it's 
literally too late. Mm-hmm. Like we have destroyed the earth and there's not, there's literally nothing that we can do to stop it um, from happening. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. It was tough. Like to, to MG's point about like the California, like forest fires, like we know it's going to be a bad fire season this year as well because it's been right. so dry. Yeah, and drought. so it's just like, we know like there's just nothing that you just know it's going to be bad. Like you just know, like the only thing you can do is like go buy air filters now before like they sell out in three months. Right. Yeah. And at one point they literally say, I took the note of it. It's like mask up. Like it, like it's mm-hmm. a known yeah. thing, you know, like that they go through this on a regular thing and it feels, you know, a little bit close to home because it feels like that's what California is going to be like. Basically we have the N95s both from smoke and now from the pandemic. And it's like, we're going to have those with us forever, yeah. you know, going forward. So that's a bummer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Biden announced today 50% reduction by 2035. Those are good targets if we can hit them. Great. (laughs) Great. Jason, come on. You're supposed to be like giving me some hope here. No, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. We just need a bootstrap paradox to get us out of this. So, uh, so the, there's a sandstorm. She left her Murph left her window open, and so there's a lot of dust that's coming in, and they go up there. So this shot was absolutely gorgeous of the dust kind of just falling into the room and seeing the light and the presage yep. of the uh, of the tesseract. Um, but basically, you know, there's this question of books have been falling and things are happening, and Murph's actually been tracking it, and she's seen that there's some sort of Morse code, um, and. He says uh, it's not a ghost, it's gravity. And he flips a coin and it falls in a kind of weird way. Um, and then over, you know, the next scene says it's not Morse, it's binary and it's coordinates. Right. They got the coordinates to NASA 2.0. Exactly. So they head to the military base and we have our first introduction of TARS. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Because TARS shocks them in the in the in the car. Right. It wasn't Tars clear. Like he room. did he tase him? Like, what, what does he actually do? Oh, yeah. Is it sort of off camera? Yeah, he tased his ass, man. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he got him. Tars, uh, should we talk about Tars now? Or because, like, I, I mean, like, it might take a minute. We can save Tars if we want for a few minutes. We just see the, the initial introduction of him as a military robot. In rewatching it, I had not rec- remembered, like, what exactly Tars was other than just, you know, sort of like a helper robot, but he was ex military. Like, so that's what, right. That's what uh, presumably the United States was using as. Their sort of military grunt work was was these types of robots. He's like described. He's like described in one of the featurettes as like being like sort of a grizzled like veteran marine who's like kind of mm-hmm. got like a wry sense of humor and's kind of seen a whole bunch of shit and like nothing's really gonna bother him too much at this point in his career. Um, fucking love Tars. Can we talk about Tars now? I don't want to wait. I want to talk. About uh, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. So first of all, he was played by Bill Irwin. Yes, Bill Irwin, who will be f- well known to all parents as. Mr. Noodle. Noodle. That's from, exactly what from I From Elmo's up. world. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. How do I know that? How do I know that voice? Who is that? Yeah. Yep. Mr. Noodle. Yeah. It's Mr. <laughs> Noodle. Uh, yeah, he's great. So he's like a he's uh, you know, one of the world's most uh well trained like clowns and like mimes, and he's an incredibly phys- physically gifted uh actor. But I thought it was just the voice, right? So I, I was like, I was thinking, this is uh, this has got to all be CG. This whole thing, yeah. and his performance is amazing. False. It's almost oh, no. all <laughs> practical. It's crazy. Yeah, they made a crazy eighty-pound steel uh, Tars that Bill Irwin had to push around, fucking Iceland with his feet for a and, while. Lift it, and lifting it up, and the whole, <laughs> yeah, that was insane. Yeah, and he did the other one too, right? Yeah, yeah, case. yeah. yeah. Case. 
Yep. Get out there, Mr. Noodle. Push his fucking giant ass steel shit around. Yeah. They had to figure out like how he can move. Now I will say, like, like if you watch Bill Irwin do like his like vaudeville clown, clown thing yeah. stuff, like he's tremendously gifted. Like his mime stuff is ridiculous. I don't know if you really got the full <laughs> Bill Irwin experience from like the two legs <laughs> of like 80 pound steel stars, but the voice acting is awesome. Additional customization. Humor. 75%. Confirmed. Auto self-destruct T minus 10. Nine. Let's make that 60%. 60% confirmed. Knock, knock. You want 55? Like the, 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 his, the personality he imbues Tars with is amazing. Yeah, his timing is so good. Um, yeah. Was there any, so I didn't see the background on uh, the TARS robot. Like what, what is the notion though of like how it moves? And so the theory from that, there's a featurette on the, on the Blu-ray DVDs. Really good. That's really good about TARS. And like the, and the theory about it was that he's like, we don't want to, we don't think of them as robots. We think of them as automated machines. Like it's supposed to be some, this, this machine that is not, you know, anthropomorphic, Mm -hmm. uh, that does these tasks. And they came up with this, like the, the initial sketches were kind of, you know, pretty directionally where it ended up. It was like kind of two legs and a centerpiece. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they ended up kind of like making it more monolith like from there. Right. That's it's what I thought it was at first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and if you look at it, if you you start with a monolith and then you divide it into four pillars Mm -hmm. and then each of those pillars divides into four sections and then those four sections subset. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And each one of the subsections, they each preserve the proportionality of the original, um, which is another, that's another 2001 like callback for sure Mm. so like in the in 2001 like there's the monolith on the moon and then there's the monolith uh like floating around you know saturn slash jupiter uh and uh they they are proportionally related and like it's like this it's it's like each side it's like one to four to nine so it's got the proportionality of the squares and the theory is that the it extends into higher dimensions as well Mm. um which is also relevant to interstellar science shit but also speaking to your the retro tech point earlier, Jason, it's it's his screen is like you know like old looks school, like shit, right? Yeah. DOS interface or whatever. Yeah, it is. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. He's got, he's yeah. got some he's got some shitty command line. Yeah, he's running logo. Yeah, it looks it looks really it looks really good. And he's got like braille. He's got like braille buttons on the front. His name's like written in braille. Also, Tars and Case. I was looking at him. Both of them. Yeah, it's in yeah. braille. Also, Tars is just such a good name. Like it's particularly for Matthew McConaughey's accent, they picked a word <laughs> that he could say that really has some is a is a power word uh, for sure. Very good, love it. Tars Tars was an incredible performance. Come on, Tars, Tars plus plus, much love. Um, we also get our introduction to Doctor Brand. We have Anne Hathaway. This is their second team up um, after 2013's. The Dark Knight Rises again, oh, shit. or something, which we won't talk about now. But oh, yeah. um, about what's, what's your take, MG, on on Anne? I don't have a strong opinion, honestly. Uh, I feel like she could have been played by a, a number of other actresses as well. But uh, you know, I name think she... five. <laughs> Let's see. Um, 
I think she's good. I, I don't think, again, I don't think it's like super memorable. I think Jessica Chastain was much better sort of in, in her role and more memorable mm. in it. Um, mm. But I think Anne Hathaway is good. And I think I think the parts where she's trying to, uh, and we can talk about it in a little bit, where she's trying to, um, you know, do misdirection around her her intentions are are interesting. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, like... I don't know. I didn't. I didn't fully buy into her relationship with her dad, and so uh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. That's that's sort of how I feel about it. But I don't have like what a about, strong. What about Amy Adams? Reaction. What if we? What if we like just pulled some forward? Some that oof, could that could work. Uh, I could see that for some sure. arrival energy. Arrival she wouldn't have been yep. available for arrival then, though. So. Well, look. I mean, I don't want to like. I don't want to like. I'm. We don't. We can't. We can't re- redo history. But I'm just saying, like, if we're choosing <laughs> folks. If we're choosing folks to like send from, through the wormhole from the world, yeah, yeah. Um, Carrie Washington, I think, could have been interesting oh, in that role. Like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I would. I think. I think Anna Hathaway was fine. Okay, she All was right. fine. I've, I'm she picking up a theme from you uh, so far on the casting on this film. Yeah. So no, I, Matthew McConaughey is Matthew McConaughey and Matt Damon are like some of the like uh, truly inspired choices. Yes. Yeah, I think this is one of Matthew McConaughey's better roles for sure. One of his best roles for sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, definitely. Just behind Rust Cole, and Jessica Chastain's great in this too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we we do get introduced. There, you know, Doctor Brand. She brings him in uh, to meet the rest of the crew. Oh yeah. So basically, they lay out the story, and Doctor Brand, who who Coop knew from the last time he was in NASA. That 50 years ago, someone placed a wormhole um, outside Saturn that leads to 12 stars. Um, and NASA has sent out missions, but uh, those were one-way missions, the Lazarus missions. Um, and essentially, they want Coop to pilot the last ship um, to head out there. And this is where they introduce the ideas of plan A and plan B. Right. And this was a little bit confusing, too. And I'm glad you bring up the 12 stars thing, because at first I thought they were saying 12 planets, but then they sort of like corrected that it's 12 stars. But it's also when we later get to one of them has a wormhole. Right. One of them is like two planets around the same three, three planets around the yeah same three around the black hole. Black hole. Right. Yeah. I was confused. by So it's a little confusing. Yeah. That part's a little confusing. And the other nine, I guess they just <laughs> they're just fucked. You're right, <laughs> not sending signals yeah. or doing something. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, yeah, and I, I guess maybe this is. I mean, the concept here, like they they couldn't just send us to one planet, um, because if you just went to one planet, you wouldn't get the ability to pass the information through that you need to be able to do. So this is the, the sort of cyclical nature um, of what's happening here. It's fine. They had to send a bunch of people out. It's fine. Yeah. And like it introduces the concept of like, you know, we don't know what's going on out there. We're hoping one of these one of these bullets works out. To take it back around the table when he walks in there. I had not I don't think I had seen the Wes Bentley Yeah. Wes Bentley who guy uh since like American Beauty, right? Like that's like yeah. that was his thing. And then Hunger Games. I know he's in that new show that people like, um, the Montana based one, uh what oh, Yellowstone. Yellowstone. Costner. Yellowstone, yeah, yeah. But I don't think I'd seen him like since because he's in he's in the Hunger Games. Oh, oh, oh. He was Seneca Crane in the Hunger Games. Ah, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So he showed, he's that's in the first right, Hunger That's right. Games I do movie. remember that. Okay. Yeah. 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 But then yeah. also, he was awesome in Mission Impossible Fallout. 
Oh yeah. He is the he is the new husband of of uh Ethan's uh ex-wife, Michelle Moynihan. Oh he has a big part at the end with the crazy eyebrows at the end. But he's great and it is a super small part. We talked about him in the The eyebrows in that podcast. Yeah. The eyebrows. Yeah. Oh, okay. My 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 ex lady's got a guy with crazy eyebrows now. Yeah, he also <laughs> he also played antigen scientist parentheses uncredited in underworld awakening so you know oh he's God. been busy oh, yeah right that's a big one yep okay <laughs> but he does he has like a meaningful role in this movie he's I good mean, in you this know, one. for for a bit of time very good so we have so we have these two plans that are crazy eyebrows this guy this, i'm looking at his <laughs> eyebrows right now and they're just i mean i've got pretty big eyebrows myself but this guy is like next level he, they're very romantic eyebrows anyway yeah. let's go uh, so we have plan A and plan B that are laid out by Sir Michael. And plan A is they're building a giant space station and they're going to try and rescue people off Earth if they can crack this gravity equation so that they can lift stuff up and get people off the Earth. Um, and plan B, if they can't do that, they at least have 5,000 embryos frozen on the ship <clears throat> that they'll be able to take into space and repopulate. Yeah. And um, basically, Coop doesn't need that much talking he wants to go he's excited at the prospect of going he has to you know this great scene with um john lithgow lithgow who is yeah. his wife's is his dead his wife's, father-in-law yeah yeah father this world's a treasure donald has been telling us to leave for a while now mankind was born on earth it was never meant to die here and the fact that he wants to go into space doesn't make it the wrong thing to do, which is the same logic that he turns around on Brant later, um, which I thought was a nice call in the script. Did you guys, it wasn't exactly clear to me what Matthew Conaghy did other than, so he was a part of NASA and he was like sort of like a test pilot type yeah. character that like flew close to space but didn't quite go to space. And, and they sort of allude to this thing later and they never talk about it again, but that the NASA, and I think it's actually in that scene maybe, that NASA was being tasked with dropping bombs on people to wipe people out so that they didn't have to feed as much as the population, something along those lines, like that they sort of hint at, right? They, they do say later. So if you go back and watch, uh, which was, again, it was helpful doing a second watch this week. Um, he's actually flying a Ranger. Okay. So he's flying the exact same ship that he's flying later. And so this was uh, one of the missions. And good. actually Dr. Brand says you were training for this mission. So mm. I don't know why he left. Maybe it was because his wife died sometime after the crash and he had to go home and take care of the family. Right. And the crash was caused by the anomalies, you know, which we learned, like, right. The, the crash was caused by the anomalies, too. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it was centered on him for some reason. It was him. It was, yeah, I'm sure he did. Right. It. He caused himself to crash or something that set all this in motion. Yeah. He huh. caused himself to crash to, like, sentimental. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. So, um, so Murph is not happy about the fact that he is leaving. Um, she is quite upset. Um, and she even tells him she has the notebook she's been tracking and the message from the ghost is stay. Um, but he says he has to go. Um, and he gives her a watch, um, and says that, you know, he's got, he's got to leave. So how was that, you know, as a parent, you know, what does that feel like to think about leaving, uh, under those circumstances? Crystal actually asked me, she's like, what would you like? She's like, how would you do this with Griffin? Like if you were the one who was like having to go, how would you have this conversation? I was like, no one's going to want me for this mission. Like, this is not like a, this is not something like I'm not, I'm not a desirable. Yeah, let me quantity. call up NASA and just tell him like, guys, yeah. what are you doing? 
you know. Do you need someone? Do you need someone to tweet from from space? Is that what you need? Send some tweets back from the fucking other side of the wormhole. Good dodge Um, of that. that, Yeah. uh, Question, but but no, I think to I think to MG's point, like it it is true. Like I didn't have kids the first time I saw this movie, and like it it is kind of a cliche to be like, well, as a father, but like I, it does hit differently. Like sort of imagining yourself like never seeing your kid again for like you know the rest of their life or something like that in order to go do this thing. God, I hate that the GOP has ruined the ability to say as the father of daughters. Yeah, as the father of fucking annoying. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to I do want to call out a review from friend of the show, technical producer, Podfather Slim. In his letterbox review, he called out this scene in particular. How do you not give your daughter one more minute to come running down the stairs to say goodbye? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Right. How do you not go back upstairs and give the goodbye one more chance? You're leaving the fucking planet, dude. Go back upstairs. <laughs> I think that is a really good point. Yeah. It's a pretty aggressive interpretation of the cry it out philosophy about sleep training. To just be <laughs> right. like, well, like, I put her down in the bed and now, now I'm going to drive my truck into a spaceship. I'll see you yeah. in 23 years. Yeah, good that's luck. Exa- that's so funny because that's exactly what I was thinking of. It's like we've all been in that situation with much lower stakes. Of course, we're not right. hopefully leaving, leaving the planet. But it's just like, yeah, we'll walk away and, and close the door or whatever. And then, yeah. and, you know, the little one's still crying. And then five minutes later, it's totally fine. And, you know, yeah, like every, exactly. everything is. Yeah, and nope, not for Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Well, what's incredible, as he's driving away and, and you know, he's gone, Murph comes out, she's screaming, crying. The music is just swelling. Yep. And you have the shot of him crying as he's driving the truck. But as that's happening, you have the sound come in from the countdown on the launch. Through the rocket taking off, like it was unbelievably good. Yeah, I remember Um, that in theaters specifically, seeing that and thinking, like, "Wow, this is a great transition that they're doing here." Yeah, yeah, it is really amazing, and and it like it's very again very economic. It's hard to call a movie that's three hours long economical, but they do get you where you're. (laughs) It's like okay, let's get to fucking space already. It's like movie called Interstellar, (laughs) right? Because it's like forty five minutes in, we are now in that we're yeah farmland for forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. for a while. This is also I think I saw like some like YouTube video or TikTok or something about this movie where um, I think that's like where they start sort of introducing the organ theme like Mm -hmm. Hans Zimmer's score starts introducing the organ theme uh which becomes like obviously a a big part of the movie as the movie goes on and like it kind of becomes this you know anchor of like oh it's about their like their dynamic as well as much as anything else nice they launch and we have the scene of them getting there and locking with endurance which is great all of the shots of in space um so they built a ranger and almost like 0.8 scale ranger, 50 feet long, and for the scenes that they were going to be on set. And then they brought it home and used it for shooting all of the space stuff so that they could mount cameras to the side of it. And Hoyt von Hoytema, who is the cinematographer for this and um, a bunch of the, you know, Tenet and a bunch of other Nolan things, um, he specifically described it as like a GoPro. That was the the sense that they wanted. Mm. And I loved the shots of the front of the Ranger flying through space, going through atmosphere. It just, the effects were absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, the other thing I would say about this, once they get into space is, 
and you know it's like a cliche at this point and everyone know uh, obviously everyone knows this but it's like very few space movies obviously adhere to the silence of space thing and right. this movie does that 100% at least yeah I'm 99% sure they do 100%, 100% of the time. They do. Um, they do. Yeah. And it's it's very st- he does it in a very smart way, right? Cuz he's he's like specifically going from noisy and or music uh, you know, environments to outside and then it's just yeah. Absolutely silence. Very effective. Um, so as they go, um, they start to get their video messages. Uh, and this is the first time we have um, as they're I guess this is as they're making their burn towards Saturn. We'll be waiting for you when you get back. Little older, a little wiser, but happy to see you. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Is this your favorite Dylan Thomas? I mean, we just had some Tennyson. Yeah, we're really classing up the joint. No, I like um, the... The force that through the green fuse drives the flower is my favorite Dylan Thomas poem. Well, put that, put that in, put that in show notes. It's a good one. What is, what is the back? I didn't actually look it up. What is the backstory behind the Dylan Thomas poem here, including it? Is it just thematic or what's the, yeah, it's just thematic. Don't give up. I mean, he's like Dylan, it's Dylan Thomas. It's his most like well-known poem. Um, I think it's like he wrote fairly close to the end of his life, which was like, uh, spotted with, uh, uh, you know, bouts of extreme alcoholism and like falling into like a coma with like, you know, drinking too much. And yeah, he, he lived a, he lived a rough one. Um, but the good thing is about this poem and Dylan Thomas in general is that he was also, one of the things he did for money was he read poetry for the BBC radio. Uh, and so you can like, you listen to like an amazingly good quality recording of him reading the poem and the force that through the green fuse drives the flower drives my green age. That blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. Dylan Thomas has like, I mean, the reason he was reading poems for the BBC is that he has a really good voice. Better than Michael Caine? It's good? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's really good. So yeah, check that one out. Um, all right, so now we have the wormhole, the approach. So, Jason, now this is the part where you describe the design of the wormhole and uh, and all well, that. So the wormhole, the thing about the wormhole is that, um, so right, so I think we mentioned this before, but just to be explicit. So Kip Thorne is a Caltech astrophysicist uh, who, subsequent to this movie, won the Nobel Prize uh, for mm. the design of the LIDO gravity waves detector. Uh, so he's like, you know, as legit, uh, he's into gravity. Yeah. He's into gravity. He knows everything there is to know about cosmology and black holes and stuff. So this isn't like they got like, they didn't get a fly by night, like cosmologists. They got like a legit dude. Um, and he also, Kip Thorne is also famous for having won a bet against Stephen Hawking, um, about the existence of naked singularities. Um, Hmm. more about, more about which later in this episode, um, so anyway, so he's, he 
An interesting thing about this movie is that in his telling about it, he went on a date in the early 2000s with a woman named Linda Opst, who's a Hollywood producer. Um, right. And who produced um, Contact. Contact. Mm. Yeah. And and, he, and yep. Kip Thorne is like, was like a, a like a, you know, colleague slash friend of, of Carl Sagan. I'm putting it on the list. It's on the list it's great. right now. It's great. It's now on the list. And so they wrote a treatment for this movie that was basically about like, uh, the, in the prologue of their treatment, uh, scientists discover a wormhole around Saturn because of gravity waves being caused by a pulsar orbiting a black hole on the far side of the universe and the waves transverse the, the wormhole and we detect them here and they figure out there's a wormhole. Right. So that's that. And then like Christopher Nolan took the movie and he wrote a whole other thing and took out the prologue and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. And, and, uh, and, but I, I had just read this tonight cause when doing research for this, I didn't realize that either. And it, that's how it actually caught the eye of Spielberg before that. Right. right. Cause he was yeah. attached to it ahead of Spielberg was uh, attached Nolan. to it before Cause Jonathan yep. Nolan was going to write the screenplay. Right. And then Christopher Nolan came in. Yeah, oh, so Jonathan yeah. Nolan came in after the fact. So she already had it going on. Yeah, she, there was a treatment that the the Kip Thorne and Linda Obst Got had it. worked on before Jonathan, before Jonathan right. Nolan, before Spielberg, before Christopher Nolan. I didn't know any of that. That's amazing. Yeah. So so Christopher, so they changed the story, but like Kip Thorne was like this, you know, produ- has a producer credit on the movie, and like you know, put all the equations on the blackboard that you know are in Michael Caine's study, and like worked with the the, the visual effects studios called. Um, was double negative uh and they did like the black hole effect and the wormhole effect and like you know all all the visual effects in the movie um or most of the visual effects in the movie Uh, and he worked on them on like the visualization most notably the visualization of the black hole of gargantua uh which they wrote scientific papers about afterwards because it like revealed all these features about black hole it revealed new things right that was the crazy part of it Yeah. yeah right and they did the wormhole thing now the wormhole thing uh kip thorne has said is the most kind of is the least scientifically accurate part of the movie um both both because like wormholes are fairly conjectural in terms of them existing they're completely it's completely it's very difficult to believe them existing at that to be stable and existing at that size Uh um and uh, but then like for the purpose of the movie too, when they did the visualization based on Kip Thorne's equations for the wormhole, it looked pretty boring. Cause it's just like, you kind of like, it, it looks like a sphere. The hole looks like a sphere in space. And then you just kind of go through the sphere and you're on the other side. Right. Uh, and so they did all of this other kind of rejiggering of the effects where they put in stuff of it, like, you know, looking like different shapes of wormholes and putting in like, you know, they extended the sequence and made it more dramatic. The light bending around. Yeah. yeah all this other stuff that isn't strictly that like, isn't, really supported by the science um but looks super dope and when they say people someone put the wormhole there right because they keep alluding to this like there's a whole right. day thing and we can, we'll go into that later but like when they say that do they just mean that someone open their their theory is that someone opened it from the other side and this is the the exit point of it well the the worm there's really not the there's really not like an entrance and an exit like it's it's equally you go you can like you know either side is is equal like the the tricky thing but it's actually twelve sides leading to one location the the problem right in this instance what's that it's twelve it's twelve other locations all leading to this one oh because of the twelve star locations i guess so i don't know if that's fully explained yeah that's not i don't know it could be 12 different wormholes or that we just only see one of them i don't know it's a good point because like my interpretation was that like it's point to point Mm -hmm. like it's one point 
from around Saturn to another point in another galaxy. On that other side on the other galaxy, there are multiple accessible star systems. Uh, like somehow i know i think it's i think the the way they described it with the periscope of coming around and being able to see in right the way i looked at it as depending on where you entered into it which which side you came through you would go to one of the 12 locations mm. and because they specifically before they went in they chose that star system because it had three planets versus the other nine and then they lined up and flew in with that trajectory at the right direction to go to that one to go to that one yeah exactly so it's the same wormhole but if you enter from a different lo- uh, direction then you'd go to a different star system i think that's even less well supported by the science okay. like the idea of it's okay. like that it seems a little crazy well sure the idea that there's like multiple yeah. off ramps <laughs> sure. is is a little goofier well you're a level what level four civilization if you can generate a stable wormhole the Matrushka stuff, yeah, it's level three. Like oh, if sorry. you if you can take advantage of the energy of a, of a, of your whole galaxy, like I mean that's the point is like the is that like the only way you could keep the the wormhole open is if you ha- could somehow like thread it with negative energy, yeah. Um, which you know, sure, why not? Seems yeah. reasonable. Yeah. yeah, why not? I just want to have just a quick sidebar, unrelated to uh, to this, just a quick physics moment. Um, so when the first time we ever discovered pulsars, that was like how long ago? Like 40 years ago, right? Uh, I don't know when the first pulsar was discovered, but like... And, and wasn't it wasn't it like the LGM where they wrote it down because they had never heard something that was so naturally, it was like so perfectly rhythm there, like this is definitely an artificial source? You mean like the, the OMG signal thing? Yes, uh, I think you're conflating two different things. Is it quasars? Well, I thought it was pulsars. Pulsars spin, right? Pulsars spin. There's also quasars. Like I like. So I think like the and then there's also the OMG signal, uh, which like yeah, like which kind of goes into some of the stuff that's happening in the movie in terms of, um, but like a, pul- a pulsar can just be a pul- a quasar is a very distant object. Yeah. Um, like are some of the most distant fast receding objects in the in the universe whereas like pulsars are usually more like white dwarf stars that are rotating and emitting okay uh emitting signal but they are emitting a very specific regular pattern sure and they don't change right right each one is very specific as if it is most definitely a mechanical device well that is set up that is transmitting and you have all these different pulsars right that transmit with different rates so they sound intelligent but but it's a naturally occurring thing. It's naturally occurring. Well, yeah, and you can use the and you can use the you, I mean basically you can use the frequency of the pulsars to determine distance and luminosity and so it's like one of the things that you can do to like help gauge the distance of other stars. Correct. Um there are these objects that are so known like these like standard candles um where you can use these objects that have these very like um these very regularly repeating like Cepheid variable stars are like one class of these pulsars. And like based on the frequency that we observe, we can know certain things about their distance and luminosity. Well, we we can and the people who put them there also can. That is my that's but, my question. Like, why wouldn't <laughs> no the isn't isn't a pulsar if you have a concept of pulsars as these beacons yeah. that are all over the universe that you can use to navigate different locations to But we don't need we don't need like any extraterrestrial 
like ex- explanation for why the pulsars pulse. Like we know the pulse. The- you don't need it. I'm just making the. I'm asking the question. Obviously, the bar. The higher the the concept, the higher the bar would have to be. But wouldn't this be exactly what we would expect to see if, like the uh, what's it? What's is this flames of Gondor? What's the you know where they light the yeah the beacons? Oh yeah. Well, I'm thinking of in Contact. You have the scene of like the interstellar. Somebody built the the wormholes in Contact, and they're like, we don't even know who built it. It was another race before us, but like, aren't pulsar? I, I I just wonder why it was Jodie Foster's father. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jodie Foster's father built the pulsars. <laughs> All right, that's the end of my that's the end of my pulsar. We'll, right. we'll take this offline. Great. All right, so um, they go through the wormhole. Wait, and wait, hold on, hold on. You guys said you were gonna. You didn't do. You haven't done contact yet, but you're adding We've it to not. the list. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, because yeah. obviously the Matthew McConaughey thing here with is also a good parallel to that. Yeah. He's incredible yeah. in that movie. Contact is a great movie. I love Contact. Yeah. Oh yeah, Matthew McConaughey is in Contact. That's right. Yeah, he's Palmer Joss. Palmer Joss. That's a great name. Yeah. Uh, God, I can't wait. All right. So the scene of them flying in front of the wormhole, skimming into it, being inside the wormhole, her seeing that some ghost, one of the beings, is reaching through yeah. and putting her hand to to touch. There was like big, like big vibes from like um, the abyss, yeah, and the yeah, yeah. the like the tentacle coming out uh, yeah. to touch her and contact uh, and contact. I guess that's true. And yep. contact yep. too. Yeah. All right, so they get to the other side. This sort of like the wormhole reopens up uh, in the other galaxy, and now they have to decide what to do. So they have three planets to check out. Um, one of them is Miller's planet, and that is the, science, the the astronaut Miller, and they haven't gotten any beacon, any points from her, but it looks like there's water. And that is the closest one, I think. is the... That's the closest one, exactly. Right. But there's a problem. The planet is much closer to Gargantua than we thought. Gargantua. It's what we're calling them, the black hole. Miller's and Dr. Mann's planets both orbit it. And Miller's is, is on the horizon? Oh, it's a basketball around a hoop. Landing there takes us dangerously close, and a black hole that big has a huge gravitational pull. Um, look, I, I could swing around that neutron star to decelerate. No, 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 it's not that. It's time. The gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. Oh, how bad? Well, every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. So they have to figure out how to do it as quickly uh, and safely as possible and, and to be really effective. And nothing could possibly go wrong when they set it up like that. No. It's, and also it's like, it's worth noting, like they do all the, they do all the math and like kind of set up the audience to be like, okay, here's the thing, right? Because Gargantua is in this gravity well, it's close to the black hole. Uh, we're going to lose all this time back on earth by going there. Uh, and so like, you know, things that happen there will seem like, you know, it just happened, but, um, it will be years back on the spaceship or back on earth. They like set that up like very careful cause it's key to the whole concept. But like at no point does it occur to anyone that like, well, if that's true, then Miller going there would also have just happened for her, but right, could be like years right. for us. They yeah. actually said that. Brandon they didn't say it after, after the, the fact. fact. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Say after like she fact. just died. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So, um, so I do want to say the the score as we're going down uh, to Miller's to Miller's world is so amazing, um, and it's one of the effects that he uses many times, where he just has this kind of like a clock beat. 
that is your starting point, and then it builds from that. And in watching the the documentary today, the discussion of him, he had like the violin players hit their violin strings with pencils. Oh, really? And he had the the horn players hit their mouthpieces with their hands, mm. and the cello players just slap the side of their cellos with their hands, all recorded in this giant cathedral to create this otherworldly clock uh, effect. And then you have Roger on the, this guy, or Richard, whatever, on the organ, and it's just so intense. super intense and like there's also this fact that like the ticking is like every tick is an hour uh back on earth like it's meant to like reinforce oh really the, is that is that true? yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, i didn't know that that's cool yeah all right i i figured out how to deal with my number one nit with this movie um after watching it for the second time uh the other night and that Great. is i have decided that the rangers their spaceships are too dope were designed to be in water. Right. They were designed to be able to land in water if they had to and then to be able to take off again because the the crux of the problem is they get down on the on the planet it's all water as far as the eye can see um and they end up having a wave coming and they get caught up in the wave, they surf it um and brand loses time so they basically get stuck for an hour um and lose whatever and they lose they lose seneca crane they lose they lose uh you know mutant yeah, antigen oh scientist uncredited from underworld as well he stood there for like way too long he's like uh, uh yeah he deserved to get he deserved to get wiped out like get in get in get in i'm going to wait here i'm just standing right here get in come on he did get case the robots got you but get in yeah bummer for him that is amazing. So when Case starts running, like the legs transitioning into the whirling dervish of, yeah. of getting there, um, I do want to call out Nathan Crawley, who is the production designer um, working on all the robots, the ships, everything. The production design in this film in every way is completely just as good as it gets. Fun, fun facts about this sequence, uh, of which there are many. This is dope. This whole thing is great. Giant wave looks great. Yeah. Uh, what are those mountains in the background? Yeah, yeah. looks great. Cool. Yeah, uh, it was shot. On, it was shot on location. Uh, they shot this whole thing on location. Obviously, the waves are not real, but the they shot this in Iceland. I don't know why that's necessary. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> right. it, it feels yeah. like they could have found the ocean's the ocean. No, no. I mean, also they needed something that was shallow. It's shallow, and so it's as yeah, far yeah, as you can see, shallow. but it's yeah. only three feet deep. I know, I know. So it would be easier to do that like in a soundstage than, uh, you know, than like to go to <laughs> Iceland. Iceland. Yeah. Um, so there's an amazing, there's an amazing thing about like shooting and I, there's amazing shooting in Iceland feature out of like the 25 featurettes that are on the DVD. Uh, and my favorite thing about it is like, so they had to like film this in the water in Iceland, even though it's like only like two feet deep, like they still had to like be in water if it's two feet deep. And like, so the whole crew is standing around, they're like setting up the shot and the whole crew is wearing like, you know, gators, like up to the, up to the hip, mm -hmm. you know, gators because they're standing in freezing cold water. Are you talking about his it, jacket? Chris Nolan yeah. is wearing his jacket in Chris the waders. Nolan, <laughs> Chris Nolan really? is wearing his sports jacket. Everyone oh else God. is wearing like Arctic parkas. He will not take it off. That's amazing. He will not take off that fucking jacket. It is, he's so committed to the bit. <laughs> I wrote that down. I wrote that down too. Oh my God. <laughs> I hope it's at least like, uh, if you guys, 
remember from the 49ers uh, yesteryear when Mike Nolan was the coach, right? He used to wear the Nike suit because he also wanted to adhere to the suit on the, oh, the sideline yeah. thing to class it up. So he had like a special Nike suit made because oh, you had to wear amazing. Nike apparel. So hopefully Chris Nolan got the Mike Nolan uh, so nice. fucking dedicated. Suit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That was that was amazing. They are also like they're very casually. The producers like we had to build a fifty kilometer highway in order to get to the location. Yeah, to get the stuff there, they had to they had to pave a road to the to the lake that they filmed this thing at, including driving the ship, which is twenty feet wide and fifty feet long. uh, Yeah, that that would take up the whole thing. It's absolutely stunning. And let's just go ahead and and take a moment right now to say my whole impression of this film is that Nolan is like a blood brother to Denny. Everything has to be real. Yeah. Everything has to be practical. No green screens, no like uh, fanciful, you know, bullshit CG, just everything real and grounded and emotional. Aside from black holes. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, I think Todd Vizieri or, or like, you know, like, um, like would jump in to say like well like it's all they're all effect shots like none of it is real right like i mean like they sure. they have to like they there's a ton of there's a ton of cg in terms of just making the tar stuff work i mean there's a giant there's a the four thousand foot wave is also not real um of course there's cg there's appropriate use of cg but the point is everything that could be done physically is done physically yeah huge difference i love the four thousand foot wave one fun fact about the four thousand foot wave so this again is like so Kip Thorne like came up with a whole physical theory for how this would work. Um so there's like a couple there's a couple things to say about Miller's planet. One is is that they had to come up with a way to justify the time dilation of, you know, uh like it would be 23 years that they were down there. Mm-hmm. Uh and it turns out you have to be pretty fucking close to the black hole in order for that to be true, such that like you wouldn't it like the, like Kip Thorne was like there's no stable orbit for this planet. Right. right. Cuz you have to be almost traveling the speed of light or the orbit would have to be. You have to be like really really close to the really really close to the event horizon. Right. And so uh Kip Thorne or you know Christopher Nolan was like you know, make it work. Go, go get your markers out and like come up with something <laughs> make it work. And so what Kip Thorne came up with was that um, the plan would be that close, but the black hole would be spinning very, very fast. And the spinning of the black hole would like help it maintain its orbit. Additionally, the planet huh. uh, would have just been captured recently in like the, you know, like cosmologically recent past. Oh, um, and as a result, it's wobbling in its orbit. Uh, and that wobble is what produces uh, is what produces the waves, the massive waves. Interesting. Huh. Oh, cause I was like, how do you have a wave if it's all shallow? Yeah. It's, 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 it's tidally like, so it's, it's like the same kind of wave that you get in a, there's a type of wave like called a bore, a tidal bore, mm. uh, that you get in a river, um, where you have shallow water leading to a deeper body of water. And like, it's, it's, the type of way that you get here, one of the things you notice is like it doesn't crest. It's a soliton wave. Right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's like that's one of the features of the of the type of orbit that the planet is in. And so it's also one of the things where it's like they should have observed all this. And be like this planet fucking sucks. Like it's like yeah. on the, the it's like <laughs> right. it's not going to see make that from it. afar. Maybe. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. It's all water. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. really, Does, doesn't just, look good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so on the ship after you know they they are you know getting the getting the ship back to where they can t- they can take off. Um, 
you have this discussion about relativity and he's saying there's got to be a way for us to get back this time. And Brand feels terrible because she has, you know, she feels like she blew this and, you know, waste cost them all this time. Um, and uh, she, she wanted to get, what did she want to get the beacon? Is that what she Yeah, she was like, trying to get the data. Yeah, she, she was trying to get, get the, the data. Beacon. Right. The black box, basically. You should have had enough data, I think, Brand. Yeah, the, the data is this planet sucks. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But um, she says to him, that time is relative, but it can't go backwards. She says, they are beings of five dimensions. Right? To them, time might be another physical dimension. To them, the past might be a canyon that they can climb into and the future, the mountain they can climb up. But to us, it's not, okay? And Jason, to me, this was a direct... Yeah, Herbert call right. Is, I I felt that too. Mm. Yeah, Herbert heard from MG for for your perhaps for your benefit or certainly for our listeners who do not have to w- listen to Dune as we've reiterated at the top of this podcast. <laughs> Herbert yeah. talks about his theory of prescience or seeing the future as being like being either in a canyon or in a mountain and sometimes or being in or being on in, in, in a sea in which like the wave crests and you can sometimes see farther or sometimes you're in the trough and you can't see as far. Um, yeah, and that's how oracular vision works. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what Nolan's uh, what Nolan's take is to uh, to Herbert. So they head back up and they get to Endurance. They dock and the the door opens <laughs> in the theater. My jaw dropped open <laughs> when yeah. it was revealed that it had been twenty three years for Rom. This is one of the coolest scenes. Yeah, twenty three years for Rom. Tough for him. He kind of takes it on the chin though. He's fine. He's just like I thought he was going to go insane. You guys were gone for a while. <laughs> Yeah, they sort of set it up right that he's gonna just like he's gonna be the Looney Tunes guy who is yeah all of a sudden off the off the rails because he's been just waiting for them for twenty plus years and been doing these yeah. equations and then goes to the long sleep or whatever uh, for some of the time but instead yeah. he he pulls it together and yeah he he rallies he rallies he does fine he took some naps he was up there with his robot friend it was fine he did some equations got some. Crunch some numbers. Yeah. I just thought that was great. Um, I thought that that moment was really, really powerful. You've been gone so you've been gone so long. Yeah. Twenty three years, four months, eight days. Yeah. Yeah. So we so we have years of messages that are there, and this is where we get him sitting down. We have Timothy checking in. Um. Oh. I met another girl, Dad. I. Uh, I really think this is the one. And then the switch to Casey and him describing his baby Jesse being born. That's right. Hey, Dad. Look at this. You're a grandpa. His name's Jesse. I kind of wanted to call him Coop, but Lois says, maybe next time. And then Jesse Jesse dies. dies. Right. That is. That yeah. is a brutal, subtle a, reveal. Your grandfather. Right? Oh, he died. Yeah. You were a grandfather for five minutes or whatever yeah. it was in the messages. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 And yeah. then him saying, I guess I'm letting you go. I don't know where you are, Dad. Uh, I hope that you're at peace. And we finally have arrived at interstellar crying dot gif. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. It's I mean, Matthew McConaughey is a great crier. He really does. I mean, he's, it is gif worthy. He does great, and the lighting's beautiful. That is one of the things. I, again, like the not to 
just hype ultra high definition blu-ray as a technology but the lighting looks fucking amazing in this in this shit like where it's just like you get so much shadow and so much light and like it's just the perfect movie for it Mm. um it really i was very excited about it the other thing i would say is on the flip side uh the sound and and particularly the vocals obviously everyone complains about the the nolan you know situation Mm -hmm. with dark every time tenant Mm -hmm. right here, it wasn't an issue. I don't think it was even when I saw it in theaters. I don't remember it being an issue at all. And it certainly didn't didn't seem that way when I watched it again recently. But you were wearing your AirPod Studio Max, so you're probably... That's true. <laughs> that's true. With these, maybe I could hear I could hear very crystal clear. But I don't remember it being bitched about like it is on the other Nolan films. I don't think it was. I always subtitle. That's another thing about at home. Always subtitle. Yeah. So, no, always record. How, very millennial of you, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like always, there's always babies around. You never know what these babies can. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're always talking. So we do have at the end, after uh, the discussions with uh, with Tom, we have Jessica. And Jessica Chastain is the adult Murph. You once told me that when you came back, we might be the same age. And today I'm the age you were when you left. This <laughs> might be a real good time for you to come back. <laughs> She's pissed. Yeah, she's very upset. I, I did, like, point of reference. That would make him, like, 33, 33. or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't Jesus think Matthew McConaughey was 33. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, wasn't no. 33 in 2014, no. I don't think. Okay. No. All right, Definitely just check not. But he right. looks good. No. He looks so, good for 33, yeah. But they do this really cool thing. She does her message, and then you flip out to her perspective back yeah. on Earth. Yes, it's great. that's a great transition, 100%. Yeah, mm. I thought that, I wrote that down, too, because that's so that's so good to do. Yeah. Super efficient, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna, sorry. I'm gonna make one more point, really quick. <laughs> Going back to Slim's uh, Slim's review. Um, speaking of the video messages, if I were John Lithgow and Murph was my granddaughter, yeah, man alive, I would read her the Riot Act. Talk to your father. <laughs> I know you're going through some yeah. shit, Murph, but your dad is in literal space and may never see you again. Get your ass in front of that camera right now. So help me. <laughs> Good point. That's a fair point. But he died. John Lithgow died. He got buried in the back 40 with mom. Yep. With you mom. solved it. And, and where, where, where Coop would have been buried if yeah. he had yeah. gone to space yeah. uh, and gotten lost. Yep. All right. So now we get to there is not enough fuel. And so they have to make the choice between man's world and Edmund's world. Um, and Brand makes the case that Edmund's world is better. Um, but there was like this subtle moment where he had asked her about Edmund and he like looks at her response and immediately knows that she's in love with him. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier. Yeah. 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 And she cops to it. Um, but she says that they need to trust that love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that even if we can't understand it yet. And this is important because this helps to lay the foundation for the the climax of the film, I thought. This is again like to my earlier point where like the 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 thematics get a little heavy where she's like, you know, like love isn't a bad thing, like uh, you know, we got to love, love matters and he's like no cold hard reason or whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay, uh-huh. whatever, you know. I I, I like yeah, you know, it seems like I think they would have made their actual decision based on a little bit more of the actual data or whatever but it's fine mm. whatever it's fine i love the fact well I, I think edmund's world was the farthest away right that was the other thing that was the other challenge i think man's was closer i think that's right yeah he's like well we can vote on it and then he's like 
Nah, I just go make the call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. We're not voting. This isn't a democracy. I'm Matthew McConaughey. We're going yeah. where I want. So they're, they're heading for man's planet. And we cut back to Dr. Brand is dying. Um, and he confesses to Murph that there, there was no plan, uh, you know, for plan A. It was all a fake. Um, and that he had solved the equation or at least half the equation 40 years ago. Um, yeah. And so that was never a thing. So that, that's a pretty intense deal. Yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty rough. I mean, I guess it's sort of like if there's no plan A, then like they were just was why send people to the planets at all then? To choose to choose the planet. That the the question is if there's no choose, if there's no plan A, why spend all of that effort building a space station when you could be building more seeding missions. I don't know if the, there's no plan A really makes a lot of sense to me to be honest. Well, I agree with that and I almost feel like so I felt differently, I guess, the, the first few times I watched it than I did this most recent time, but it felt like I'm not sure that Michael Caine wasn't just sort of being, you know, old man spouting off like that he felt regret about, you know, put, putting people down the down this path when he did actually think like there was a possibility that plan A could have worked or something like that. He just didn't he couldn't solve the equation. He just didn't do it, though. Obviously, they get into it that like Matt Damon also knew that that he could not yeah. solve the equation. Right. right? And so yeah. that sort of like goes against that theory or that he had that he had solved the equation. Right. But right. He had solved it, but he didn't have the data. Yeah. yeah right. It's uh, required. Yeah. I don't know. So we cut back from there to Dr. Mann. Uh, and so this was another, for me, a jaw-dropping moment. They they kept setting up that Dr. Mann was the best of us and this amazing guy. And Yeah. You knew he was going to be a problem when they set it up a little too. They put a <laughs> yeah. little too much mustard on the hot dog. Like a little yeah. too much. Like, he's the best. He's really, what a hero. A legendary. <laughs> great Just going to be the great. You're like, uh-oh. But I also freeze-framed when they showed the astronauts. Like, you cannot see that it's Damon. Oh, really? And that reveal of him... And his crying, I mean, it's like straight back to Google good. Hunting. Like, it yeah, was good. really, really great, that initial introduction to him. Yeah, it's great. So it's it's funny. This past weekend, uh, Megan and I, my wife and I, were staying at um, a hotel for the first time in forever uh, because mm. we're both luckily vaccinated and now feeling okay about the world. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the de- the actual Blu-rays that they had in this place that we, that we could play was The Martian. And so The Martian obviously came out a little bit later, right? I think yeah, than this, yeah, but it's like yeah. it's fascinating to watch. The, it's like what is what is both Matt Damon uh, and uh, uh, Jessica Chastain like? Why are, why are they drawn to these sort of space uh, you know type yeah. situations? And also like right very close to one another in the relative time of their release. Yeah, it's true. You like that movie? I saw the Mar- I hadn't seen it. And did you read the book? I did not read the book. So, but I saw the movie with a. It was a screening with the author of the book there, who spoke afterwards about cool. it. So I've never read the book. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a good movie. It's entertaining. It's very different than than this movie. Oh, Jessica Chastain is in that too. I didn't realize that. Yeah, twenty fifteen. Wow, hmm, that's weird. Yeah. Oh, Ridley Ridley Scott. Holy shit! I didn't realize he directed that. Huh. It's a totally different vibe, of course. But it's a marooned astronaut. Yeah. Who happens to be Matt Damon. But not evil. But not evil. Right. The nice, nice guy. Not evil. Not evil in this one. Jason, did you read the book? I did read the book. Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. I like the book. I think I like the book better than the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the movie fine. Mm. 
I think I like. I, I'd watch it again though. Uh, I just remember CJ CJ Craig is in it, so that that makes me happy. Oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's true. So Doctor Man has been on the planet for a long time. He's given sketchy vibes. Like you don't want to hook up the robot. I had to decommission him. Um, let's not mess around with that. I've I've been doing some missions. Like yep. Lots of misdirection. Yeah, so we can just cut to he takes Coop for a long walk and he attacks him. And the shot of them, like the way that unfolds, there's a shot where they, they're they wrestling and it's just a pullback. And it's, again, like a silent shot of them struggling in the distance that was just gorgeous. One, I forgot one fact, though, about um, about Man's Planet. The yeah. Plan, you know, it was so, this is, a, this is also, they shot in Iceland. And it was like, I was going to ask you, it must yeah. have been Iceland, right? It's, yeah. It's beautiful. And, yeah. And they were yeah. basically reusing locations that they had used for Batman, like, because they went to, they went to Iceland for the Himalaya stuff and Batman Begins. Yep. Um, so they're very familiar with where they're going. They're like, oh, it's great. You can just drive up on the glacier. We know the, we know the glacier guy, like no problem. Uh, <laughs> and there had been like an eruption since uh, they shot Batman Begins. So it looked like grittier, which was great. because there's all mm. this like, dust in the ice. So that was good for them for like the feel of the movie. Anyway, my fun fact about this was, uh, uh, you know, going to my money laundering theory of movies <laughs> is, um, they uh, were up on the glacier and occasionally on the glacier, you get these really high winds, like, you know, hundred mile an hour winds. And so they had a whole like 25 person glacier crew that would advise them when the winds were too high and they had to like, you know, retreat because uh, they just couldn't shoot safely in those conditions. Uh, and what they did when they uh, uh, couldn't shoot on the glacier was they went to the hotel and they shot in the parking lot. And so a lot of like, they, and they show this in this featurette, a lot of like the, a lot of like the fight and stuff like that is just like in the parking lot of this like, you know, Reykjavik hotel or whatever. And, and they have like an interview with like one of the producers who's just like, yeah, it's amazing. You know, I don't think there's ever been a movie where like you go on location to a glacier in Iceland, you end up shooting in the parking lot, but I'm proud that we did. I'm like, you're an idiot. Like you could, we have, we have parking lots in Los Angeles. Like you don't need to. <laughs> that's one thing they have a lot of in hollywood is parking lots you don't need to go to a, an icelandic parking lot but you can though but you can and they did yeah that's amazing that's awesome all right so man has attacked him he's cracked his helmet and he's watching him suffocate yeah what is what is his plan besides saving himself i thought about this a lot actually watching this again but I do think that he had some sort of idea that he would commandeer all the ships and all the equipment that they took and then go to another planet, still carry out the mission. Yeah. Of like go to a different planet. Plan B. Yeah. Basically go to a different planet, find one that's inhabitable and still carry out the mission. Right. So it's sort of like while he is, it's almost like I feel like he's maybe portrayed a little bit more evil in the way that they, they sort of do the whole story than he actually was, was, meaning to be right like he still had the idea that he would save humanity potentially by doing it but i don't know i mean i don't know that that's 100 percent the right read but that's how he sort of read it i mean he's willing to kill all of them right like he is he's willing to sacrifice every single one of them only because he thinks that they're going to get in his way of he thinks they're yeah they're they're too emotional um and all this other stuff but I will say the one thing that goes against that theory is the stuff that he does with his own robot, uh, which yeah. well, that's the Kip robot, right? Yeah. K-I-P-P. Like uh, Kip Thorne, I think. Uh, nice, nice. Uh, illusion there. Um, 
and he basically booby traps it. He destroys it, but then he also booby traps it, right, to be able to to blow up. So it's it's almost like he recognized that whoever would save him might not be on board with whatever his ulterior motive was would be. Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so now we have okay. now we have this, you know, this this sort of great parallel uh climax here. Um as he's trying to maroon them, and then also back on Earth, you have Murph who is trying to get Tom's kids out because they, or Tom's son and wife because they're sick. Um, but she's also trying to figure out how to get back into her room and, and see what's happening. So you're sort of cutting back and forth between those two things. Right. And this is where we have um, man attempting the manual docking scene. Um, and the score, it, it goes on, the scene goes on for like eight or nine minutes. It's absolutely unstoppable. Uh, and it is so intense when he gets this imperfect contact. Imperfect contact. Override. Then the shot of like the clamps grabbing and then letting yep. go and it's then so grabbing good. Yeah. in silence, right? There. Yeah. Like, boop, yeah. Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And then imperfect contact and just the fragmentation. And they're screaming at him from the ship, and they can't hear, he can't hear them until they break. She realizes that they can break through the the uh, PA the, the PA system yeah. on the on the yeah. ship or whatever. Yeah, the yeah, Sonos, the, 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 <laughs> the endurance Sonos. <laughs> they airplaned yeah. it over the uh, yeah. The thing. Right. yeah. <laughs> you know the the ship spinning and the fragments flying off. And Coop bringing in the lander to be able to come in and dock this is the at 68 RPMs. This is my favorite song. This is the best. Come on, Tars. Come on, Tars. Yeah. This is where we have to put in all the the come on tars. Of course, uh, memes. Yep. Oh, yeah, it's yep. happening! Yeah, it's yeah. happening right now. Yeah. Um, oh my god, I'm so excited! Amazing shit! Just yeah, absolutely amazing. Best shit! It's yeah. great. I love it. Uh, I'm putting my favorite one in the chat. I don't. You got to have the Lego one. That's the most important one to me. Oh, is it? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put it in the. I'll put it in the. And they cut the to a scene of Tars with the joystick, right? Of like he's like holding on because. McConaughey's uh, Coop is worried that he's going to pass out, and Anne Hathaway is passed out, right? Yeah, and like, yeah. So Tars is like, yeah, he's he's got his little uh, hook, docking hook on the thing. Yeah, yeah. Their good. shit looks fucked up though. Like it doesn't look like a great. It doesn't look like it's going to go very well for them. Like having been like, I mean, they achieved the docking, but I don't think you can just blow a giant hole in your spaceship and like you know. No, and all this fine. debris. They don't seem worried about the debris at all. It's just no. Yeah, let's there, just there's some it. shot. Oh, I mean, you. Don't, I don't think you have many options. Um, the and embryos. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. He's like. Yeah. We got to do this. Yep. Well, exactly. It's not may not be possible, but it's necessary. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So they decide they're going to um, use Gargantua because they're almost out of fuel. They're going to use Gargantua to be able to slingshot to Edmund's world. And meanwhile, as part of their doing that, Tars is going to get inserted into Gargantua, mm-hmm. and. That will help them to drop weight and to be able to do things. And so they go through, they execute the burn going through there. And this is the moment where Coop confesses that he is also going to go into Gargantua because he is going to go figure out how to get back time or, or do something. Well, I think it's also that there's not enough supplies to keep both him and Anne Hathaway alive. Right. Uh, 
That's like right. it's not it's not just like his like weight like you know the 170 pounds of Matthew McConaughey it's like they don't have enough like food <laughs> and stuff for for both of them um and I only realized that part of it when I, t- I actually turned on the captions because part of this is like loud so this is going as right. my earlier point like it was hard to hear what they're saying because I actually missed uh one of the sort of money lines in this when I had watched it the first couple times you told me we had enough resources for both of us yeah. I agree to that. Uh, as he's uh, right as he makes the the call to uh to say you know that they were always gonna be truthful or whatever with one another right um yeah so i totally missed that yeah until i turned on the captions yeah so good did, Phenomenal. So can we can we talk about gargantua a little yeah, bit we alluded please. to it earlier yeah. so like like this is where like the the visual effects stuff is very accurate like so they do there's this like you know there's all this gravitational lensing that happens because gargantua is very uh, massive it's like the mass of like several million suns um and so what you see is this you know gargantua has this disc um, which is like the rings of Saturn. You can think of it as like the rings of Saturn, or this disc of like dusk and matter. Accretion that's disc? Like orbiting an accretion disc. Yes. And that's like all this dust that's like circling Gargantua and falling into the black hole. Um, now, it's important to note like that is the source of light and heat for the planets in this system, right? Like, so there's this. Right, because it's their sun. Yeah, it's their sun. So there's this like fine tuning that like they had to do to figure out a way that like Gargantua would be big enough and spinning at the right speed and like the dust would be like, you know, enough of it, but not too much, such that like the the light coming off gargantua wasn't just like cosmic rays and x-rays that would just like fucking fry everything that was Mm. living around it so there's like some some you know parameter setting they had to figure for that um but then the big thing is that there's the disc going around it and so you see this effect where you see like a loop coming up above and what you're seeing is like the disc on the other side of the black hole is the light from that side is bending around as bending up uh, is bending it's up warped. over ah. the side yeah because of the gravity and like the light that's the that's the light that's on top it took me a while to figure that out i had to read something about it yeah. yeah yeah and the loop that's on the bottom is the light from the bottom side of the disc that's on the far side of the um on the far side of the black hole right so it's not two rings no it's not two rings it's one ring you're just seeing the bottom and the top side of the other side of the ring and you also don't need to read i mean you're you're the kind of guy that will go read that wiki you don't need to read the wiki to enjoy the scene yeah like it just looks no. fucking badass <laughs> no right? you don't right. it just looks right. good but like the rendering of this was like like as we said earlier it was so like they did a really good job like building this engine like like you know to like come up with the the to come up with the the rendering of gargantua's accretion disc and that the like there they did learn about like some features of like gravitational lensing from from doing that and moreover like there's been there's been observational um proof that that's like actually what what happens well, with accretion disc now so it's kind of cool so I guess, but the question is like, how would a how would a ship actually be able to maintain structural integrity getting into the black hole? So I'm going to assert that they were like creating a field because they can control wormholes, they can they can control black holes, so they were able to create a channel for Tars and for him to be able to get in there. So there, there's a lot of that. There's a lot. So first of all, there's a book Kip Thorne wrote called "The Science of Interstellar," um, which came out after the movie um, was released, and it's it's very approachable. Um, and it's worth. So Kip Thorne uh, talked to Sagan when he was writing Arrival, and 
oh, Sagan was like, oh, I think contact. I'm gonna have her go th- uh, contact, contact, right? Yeah. Sorry, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna have her go through a black hole. And Kip Thorne's like, no, 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 you can't have it be a black hole because a black hole will be deadly. There's no way to survive a black hole because, like in general, when you fall into a black hole, like you're there's the spaghettification mm-hmm. like that happens where you get like you know there's both forces squeezing you in and pulling them that graph that they showed in the behind the scenes where it's like squeezing and then it kind of just kind of goes crazy right well but what it what it what kip thorne says is like what is what have we've discovered since i since contact uh is that there's actually this version of a gentle singularity that we believe exists which they say specifically in the movie. yeah they say that in the movie and so this is there is this theory now that there's a gentle singularity that exists before this more chaotic what would be completely destructive singularity like Hmm. you know elsewhere you know in the black hole uh and that perhaps in this region like it would be um it would be survivable i mean the other thing to know about black holes right is that the event horizon from the perspective of someone going into the black hole you don't it's not like you feel the event horizon the event horizon is like just like a is just a transition that's observable from the outside but not to the person going in i'm steering down right it's getting black (laughs) black a lot of black and and so like there is some there is in theory some point that would be survivable and then yeah he gets rescued by the tesseract so obviously this is a direct parallel spiritually to 2001 2001 yeah uh and the idea oh my god it's full of stars right so what jason like watching this you know how does this stack up um you know for you so I mean I think I think again like the thing so what what um what they wanted like they talk about this where it's like they wanted certain answers to only be kind of to not be in the screen not be literal on the screen like to, to like to not have them explain it to you on on the screen and I think they do a, a decent job with that with like the te- what's going on with the tesseract stuff I think they make it a little more literal like 2001 there's essentially no dialogue in the last third of the movie and so you really have to do some like you know sleuthing to figure out what's going on there um and so i think 2001 is a is a more artistic movie um but you know i they do a fun job in in this one as well it's it's so funny you say that i was literally thinking about this and and thinking about how this conversation would go tonight i was like thinking like so on if you consider like a spectrum of space movies like 2001 is like the ultimate artistic explain nothing leave it all to the camera and your imagination to decide what's going on this one to me is in the middle i think there's there's other movies that do you know like do stupid explanations of like assuming that you're stupid right and saying Mm -hmm. like oh well you know here's literally why we have to do this and and it it often makes no sense of course but like this is right in the middle like they explain some things but they don't but they leave a lot of stuff sort of up to your imagination. I and we'll get to it in a second cuz I feel like some of that starts to go off the rail when they go into the tesseract a little bit. Right. Um cuz then it becomes very esoteric. Yeah. But I love I love the manifold space-time five dimensions displayed as three being able to ha- like all the bookshelves uh, just going to infinity. I thought that just looked spectacular it looks cool i think it looks cool they explain it a little too much they explain it too much i think that's right i think they like oh really they they handhold you through like sort of like okay we're gonna explain like this i mean it does explain like every anomaly that happened it's like oh yeah this is how he sent stay and this is how he like sent the coordinates and like you know it it does make it a little 
literal in this part of the movie. It does. That's that's so the scene is a little bit long. Um, I so again when I saw it the first time in theaters, I was like, yes, I knew he was the ghost. I got it. Like that was that was pretty obvious the first time through. Um, and I think what you're doing here is getting still that emotional concept, right? Like him saying stay and wanting him to stay mm-hmm. before he realizes it. Theoretically, you could have skipped that. You could have not had stay yes. and instead just have him say, let me figure out how to get you the message. I totally agree. I'm okay with them doing it. I think, it, honestly, I think it would have been a little bit better and it would have made for a more succinct movie if they just cut the, it's almost like they cut to the star child, right? Scene where yeah. he's just floating yep. in space after having gone into the black hole and what the hell just happened, uh, and rather right. than yeah being in the in the library for so long and and trying to explain tesseract concept and all this other sort of stuff and they they is us and you know all that all that stuff um, that is important though it is important it is important I think they could have just done it they could have done it like less literally like in, like I mean it's literally they have him say they is us like they really sort of just like do everything but like flash a giant like it was a bootstrap paradox sign, like, you know, on, on, on screen, like they really make it super explicit. But you, so to me, a heart of the story is the fact that love, sorry, is the fifth dimension. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that part just doesn't work for me, but it, but it's the emotional heart of what they're trying to do. Right. Thematically. I think that's fine. I think they could have done that without literally saying love is the fifth dimension. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. I agree with Jason. It's very fine. It's like, it's not like, it doesn't ruin the movie. It's just a little, the dial is just kind of. Too much mustard. The, the, yeah. One thing they do here, and Jason, I would love your thoughts on this, because I actually, I don't know nearly enough, as, as you clearly do about sort of the science of it, but like the idea of gravity being the force that can transcend the other dimensions. Like, is there right. any sort of science to that? Like, what is that actually? Well, I mean, so like, this is actually like, so Kip Tachyons? Tom won the Nobel Prize. No, so Kip, don't just say Star Trek things. <laughs> <laughs> they go backwards in time. They don't think of backwards in time. Kip Thorne um, uh, won the Nobel Prize for his work on gravitational waves, uh, which is like sort of like one of the, the like, which is basically what they're trying to do here. Now, so mm. this is, I guess, like where you have to get into like what the equation is and why they had to go into the singularity to get to get the data. Right, right. So. Because um, of all the things, they don't really explain that at all. They just say right. we have to get an equation, like this, this right. one equation. They make it seem like it's literally a piece of paper that they have to go get out of the black hole. Fetch quest. Well, and and importantly, like what is the result? What what did they do with that with that data that allows right. them to fulfill Plan B? Like what Plan A? Right. And then what did they do? Right. Right. They sent it over Morse code. It like, what did he send? 10,000 little beeps and boops? Like, what, yeah. Come on now. Don't, don't, like, don't look too hard. <laughs> I mean, Murph was sitting there for a long time writing out on that notebook. <laughs> yeah, right. Weeks, yeah. When Kip Thorne and Chris Nolan were talking about their love of 2001 and, like, how they wanted there to be things that weren't answered, like, according to Kip Thorne, anyway, in this lecture he gives, like, this was the bit that, Christopher Nolan said, like, I'm not going to explain any of that. You can do that in your book. Uh, and that will be the place where we sort of answer those questions. So Kip mm. Thorne does it in his book because it's also like sort of his, it's his work. So basically what's going on with the equation and what's going on in the Tesseract stuff and what's going on in the science is there's the right in current science 
in current science, there's this fundamental disconnect between Einstein's theory of general relativity, which explains, you know, sort of uh, what happens for very massive things and how time warps around massive objects um, and uh, quantum dynamics, like what happens at the smallest scale, right? This is and like they say that of, in the movie, too. They That's say like this understood. Disconnect. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there's there's this theory that like within the singularity of a black hole, it's like one of the analogies that Kip Thorne uses is that it's like the cresting of a wave. There's this point at which like, if you could observe what was going on there, like you'd be able to come up with a theory that would unify um, those two disparate schools of physics thought. Um, And specifically the theory that Kip Thorne, like in his own work advocates for is that we live in this, three plus one dimensional universe, three spatial dimensions plus time. Um, but that there must be an extra dimensional, uh, an extra dimensional extension of the universe in a fifth or even higher dimensions. Um, and that if there were, we know about the rules of physics that govern our three plus one dimensions, but there maybe are some equations just like, you know, Maxwell's equations govern, you know, electromechanics here and, uh, you know, Newton's laws govern regular mechanics uh, under most conditions here. There must be some additional field equations which exist in this fifth dimension, which is called the bulk, which he refers to in his work as the bulk. Mm, Um, The bulk beings. And yeah. And if we knew, if we knew those, if we knew those, um, uh, field equations, we would be able to kind of synthesize, uh, the the two different schools of uh, the two different schools of thought and like kind of have like a theory of uh, a theory of everything and we would specifically in the context of the movie know how to explain the gravitational anomalies right. um, that exist within the house and how to pick things up off the earth and lift them up into space right and specifically so specifically the part that's not in the movie but's in the book is that by doing this observation in the black hole they solve the equation you know she says Eureka. It's traditional. It's very traditional. Yeah. yeah. The results of that applied, the applied science version of that theoretical finding is that they're able to change the fundamental gravitational constant uh, of the right. universe locally on Earth such that they can send into orbit a much heavier object than we would otherwise be able to. Right. The future colony thing. Yep. Yeah. Fun fact. Kip Thorne also posits in his book that like by changing the gravitational constant in the universe on Earth locally to launch the generation ship into space, it would have the effect of destroying the planet because <laughs> it would create like these giant tidal effects of like right, you know, all right, of a sudden right. like gravity is yeah. totally different. Yeah. Um, so the planet's dying yeah, anyway. It's fu- so yeah, yeah so, so no big deal. Everyone's just got to get off at the same time. <laughs> right. Don't miss your flight. <laughs> wow. Well, and that and that sort of leads to the point that we hit on a little bit earlier that the idea that uh, it's not a they, they is us, right? And right. so it, it's like basically that that we get this knowledge in the future as a result of Matthew McConaughey passing it via Morse code back to his daughter, and then all of a sudden we have this information, and so we're able to pass it along to our to our past selves in the future. Right. You had the moment where he says, they, they didn't choose me, they choose her, right? Her, they cho- right. they yep, chose yep. her. Um, and actually, Tars says they're not here to change history. Um, to ch- they're not here to change the past. Um, right. And so, again, this is my favorite kind of time travel movie. This is a closed loop system where yeah. the message is coming from the future to 
where he is and then going back to where they are, but nothing's been changed. It's all everything that was ever happening. So I have a question for for you both, having watched it uh, along with me recently. I did not get the point at which she realized that it's her father passing the messages. Like, I know that they have it in the mood, like, you know, and she says it and she's in the room and like she has her before her literal eureka moment. What she was has it? Her yeah. Eureka moment. Like, I don't understand why what it like all of a sudden she understands it. Do, do either of you like what, what I is think it? Then? I think it's just because it, it the watch like the I think she somehow divines from like, oh, like he gave me the watch and it's using the watch. And like, that's like it must be him doing it it's just like a new set of eyes after 20 years of not being in that room or something yeah you're right though like i don't i don't think there's any way i don't think there's anything on the screen that sort of definitively leads her to believe that that i mean that is a part of the movie that drags a little bit right where she's trying to figure it out she actually gets frustrated she's trying to flip right. the coins she's in that room a long time yeah she's in like there for a while and, to- yeah, topher like, grace is outside freaking out <laughs> like, right. casey affleck's coming back <laughs> They set the thing on fire. I can't beat him up. He is he is taking people's temperatures and yeah. uh, you know making sure that everyone's okay and yeah. Maybe it's and, in the maybe it's in the header of the Morse code message that gets sent back on the watch. Maybe it's like you know to Murph from Dad <laughs> subject <laughs> sup. I honestly thought that was and and again that's why I asked you you both since you watch it. I thought that was a bit of a like it's sort of the one part that doesn't quite come around or it's yeah. like what is it about that yeah but she gets it she gets it um even though it's not clear why yeah uh maybe it's just a feeling maybe that's maybe that's the that's the message yeah so so tars says that they are closing the tesseract and um you know as he's making his way out of the wormhole he sees brand and reaches out so now we're on the other side of that scene um, he's the one who shook hands with her and then he is sort of floating in space and wakes up on Cooper station, currently orbiting Saturn. And I just love this scene where he's like, Oh, it's nice of you guys to name the station after me. <laughs> yeah. Funny. And yeah. they're like, no, it's named after your daughter. Yeah. And the fact of going, they have a replica of their farmhouse. Um, and so that bringing it back around the circle with a documentary to the beginning. Yeah. It makes a lot more sense. I, I, they did that very well, I thought, because like it's like, yeah, it why great. are they doing this sort of yeah weird retrospective? And then it's like, oh, it's a part of a historical yeah thing that, record that yeah. they have set up. Yeah, mm. That was good. How'd you like the uh, just the the like things seem to be going real well on the space station? It seems super chill. They are. They play baseball. They can crash windows on top of them. It's, and it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. This is like a yeah. disc yeah, world, or great. not disc world, but uh, whatever, like uh, cylinder world. Yeah, it so. didn't seem quite big enough. Like I don't know if they had no, more than one of them, but like they only. It didn't seem like it was yeah super large. And they say like she was in transit from somewhere else. So I don't it, like. There are multiple stations. Yes, because she is. To, she she's going to be here in two weeks. They say, and then she was asleep, right? Because they say yeah. that later that that she had been in sort of her hibernation state. Where's she coming from? In another station. In another station. In another, another station. station. Okay, right. okay. Because they had multiple stations. Okay. The other weird thing that I don't understand about this is, or it doesn't sort of ring true, the moment with him and her is very touching. It's very good. Like, I mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Like, I think that that's very good. Like, you know, Ellen you said Burson, you were coming back. Again. Yes, it's it's great. Like, especially, you know, with, with children now, it's like, it's especially poignant. But I did feel like they didn't quite square the circle of, 
this guy who is your father, who is 120 plus years old, who looks like he's 40 years old, has come back. And clearly some people know that because the doctor who first sort of inspected him knew who he was. And and then they showed off the, the house and everything. But then her entire family who's around her doesn't seem to know who he is or care or whatever it is. Or care. And she's also like, just like, it was good to see you, but like, I got my people here. Like, yeah, you know, I got to go. Should. I got, I got my should. family here now. Yeah. I appreciated that on some hand because it's like she's old now. She knows she's on death's door and like she's like, like you don't want no. I, I, it's a good line, right? Like no parent wants to see their their child die. And uh, I know, like at least could, we could spend like more than like three three minutes together. We could spend more than five minutes, and I feel like he should be celebrated more. The fact that he set this whole thing in motion. That I had that question. I had that question too, which is like, oh, it's named after her, and it's like, okay, fair enough. I mean, she solved the equation. Yeah, but I sort of helped a little bit it's like yeah it's like well, it's like what like what am i what's my version like i went into the back hole and got the yeah. got the you know the tablets yeah it's like <laughs> literally went into a black hole like also i'm 120 years old like no interest in me whatsoever like there's not even like a, and we're related and again i think i think they try to explain it that no one knows who he is and i would totally get that if like you're trying to say like oh people just won't understand it like this is some 120 year old guy who went through a black hole and like it's fine so like let's just not even talk about that but again i feel like the doctor who first woke him up was like yeah and you'll know this is your house and like yeah yeah i don't know it was weird. I'm sure there were pictures. I'm sure there were lots of pictures of Coop in the in the history books. I just don't know how he wouldn't be one of the most famous people in the world. Like, I mean, he right. literally went right. to a black hole. No, <laughs> I agree. I think it's it's almost like a filmmaking technique of like he is so focused. Even if they had reacted, it wouldn't have mattered, right? That his family. Yeah. He was a hundred percent focused on her. She was a hundred percent. Like the gravity between the two of them was so powerful that nothing was going to block that. He would have a great podcast, hundred twenty year old guy podcast. That would be real <laughs> must must listen. Good good Substack. I do love the fact that the big change now is the the Rangers and this and the spacesuits are black now. Mm-hmm. They're like fuck this white shit. Like now we're now we're like edgy. Now we're cool. Yep, we've upgraded. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so he boards a ship. He basically steals a Ranger. Yep. And uh, Tars helps him. Tars commandeers it, right? Yeah. I don't understand this point either, though. Like, isn't everyone going to Edmund's planet? No, because they just, because he just got there, right? So they didn't know. They wouldn't have known. Like, she's like, from the time he gets back, she's not even at Edmund's yet, right? Well, okay. So they were just going to go through, They, but they're going somewhere, right? I mean, like in the ship. They're going to go somewhere. Yeah, for sure. So the idea is that he came through the black hole, which led to the wormhole or a new wormhole that led him back to Jupiter or Saturn, Saturn, Saturn yeah. orbit. Uh, and that the space rangers who were out there picked him up, right, uh, and found him out there. Yep, it's unclear were they were they there? Were they looking like they had a station there at Saturn? They had the station there, so they're just like patrolling randomly and found yeah. found a guy. Laying out coming through the space with, right. with two minutes of oxygen or whatever they said left, right, uh, right, very fortuitous. Um, and <laughs> but like, but like, wait, so they must know Edmund's plan is a thing because like someone says to him like she's out there, right? Like, I mean, like, right, right. She, she says, says it, uh, right, to him. Yeah, she's out there waiting for you. So does she have secret knowledge because she's like the highest clearance or something? Like, what's the what's the deal? No, like he he probably told her they they like they probably didn't show it. Probably wasn't literally two minutes, and she's like, "Get the fuck out and go into space." 
They probably had conversations over time. So then what they should have done, and I hate to, to you know, direct this for Christopher Nolan here, but what they should have done is cut the Tesseract scene in half at the very least. Yes. And then do more of that scene, like, because that was actually very powerful. Like, with yeah, him yeah, yeah. Reuniting with his daughter, which, again, is the whole heart of the movie. And instead right. it feels very rushed and very, you know, yeah. sort of like. I like the Release the Siegler cut. I like it. <laughs> four, it's go. four and a half hours, though, is the only, the only, the only problem. That's fine. I'd watch a little more. Uh, yeah. so, the, so the final scene that we have is, uh, is back on Edmund's world, and we have, you know, she is, Brand is there, and she's getting stuff set, and he's on his way. No, this doesn't quite work either, because... They'll be right behind him, like... That the Cooper station is going to be sending plenty of Rangers to come after. Now that they know, I'm sure he's debriefed and he just decided to be the first one to go. It's fine. I, it's fine. It's not clear why time wouldn't have passed for her, though, too, because she didn't go into the black hole and Edmund's world isn't in the black hole. Right. It's outside of that. Right. It right. is. But so imagine they left at the same point, right? So yep. she's heading off to Edmund's. It's going to take like a year or two for her to get to Edmund's. On the other side, he instantaneously mm-hmm. is back where he was on the other side That's of the right. wormhole. And yeah. so she's going there. No, but he's, it's not instantaneous because a huge amount of time will have passed for him because he went into a black hole. Like that's the, re- I mean, like it's 90 right, years. Right. That's how that's he ends up. That's point, how, like, that's how he ends up in, that's how he ends up in the future, how he ends up with old Murph. However much time d- uh, diluted when he was on the planet orbiting the black hole, he spent, you know, as much time, if not more inside the black hole. No, no, but she had that too. She, she didn't go in. No, but she had the whole thing where she went. She had some of it, but she didn't go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, it's like, it doesn't work the same way inside. It's a freebie inside. I don't know, man. It's a freebie inside because he's going to. It's a freebie inside. inside. All right. All right. In the Tesseract, like maybe whatever. They have something to control it via the Tesseract. I don't know. Love, the love dimension actually uh, counteracts the time dimension. And so. It gets a little sloppy at the end, I think is what we're getting at. But I didn't really think about it much until now. Yeah. (laughs) Tesseract. All right. Tachyons, Matt. Just say tachyons again. That was so high. (laughs) Jason. Muons. What did we learn about Dune 2021 here? I mean, not a lot, to be perfectly honest. Hans Zimmer? Hans Zimmer, super great with the keyboards and the making music scores. Uh, I was just listening to the Team Deacons podcast, and they had Carter Burwell, who is the, is the composer of every Coen Brothers film ever, mm. um, including Miller's Crossing, which is my favorite. And he told his whole story of working with the Coens. And one of the things he talked about is how every director and editor, when they're cutting a film... They use a temp score. Okay. They take music from other movies and they use that temporarily where they're doing it because they're, you usually don't hire the composer until after the film is done. Interesting. Do they use the same composer's work? They use whatever they want. It, like they'll use Jurassic Park or they'll use what, whatever, whatever the, the particular thing is that meets. Famously, Kubrick went all the way down uh, editing 2001 with – all also Sprock, Zarathustra, and uh, the Blue Danube, or whatever. And when he went to get a composer, he just decided he's like, "Fuck it, I I'm just going to use this. I'm going <laughs> to use what I have. This is perfect." Mm, okay, it works. It ended up working. Nolan, when he goes to do Interstellar, he goes to Hans, and he's like, "I'm working on a movie. I'm not going to tell you anything about it except it's a father and his son." Mm-hmm. Turns out he lied because it was daughter. 
He's like, write me a, s- a central theme for that, which Hans does. And then when he gives him the theme, which Nolan loves, he says, okay, now we're making a massive scale science fiction movie. Yeah. And he hires Hans way early so that they have an actual score from Hans to cut the temp track of the movie. Well, that's cool. Very cool. That's great. Yeah. And the soundtrack's amazing. So how is Denny doing it? Mm, It was obviously done out. He's doing the, he must be using a temp soundtrack. Because he, it seems like it was being worked on. I guess, like we know that we we know the soundtrack was happening late. Like because there's all that stuff about Zimmer working on this. Like this Zimmer still finishing the soundtrack. Hans didn't have the final final thing when they were doing cutting the editing, but they had like significant portions laid out so that they could they could have that. Right. That's just a wild thing. That's a crazy thing. I know you guys are talking about this on previous podcasts, but I I'm actually not even sure how long has the has the new Dune been in the can. Like how long has it actually been done for? Uh, probably like for, I mean, like probably for months at this point. Like, I, I think like, I think they stopped doing reshoots. Like, um, they did a couple like pickups like three months ago, six months. Summer or late summer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And is there any possibility given that Warner is now on the record of saying that they're going back to theatrical next year, that they push Dune to try to hit that instead of being on the HBO Max and theatrical thing. It's possible. It's also possible they actually just don't actually do the HBO Max, and they just go theatrical, like as the first back to theatrical thing for the holidays or whatever. Yeah, here at here at yeah here at Dune Pod, we are strongly advocating that Legendary and Warner Brothers get together and just release it theatrically in October. I am not advocating that as all. I don't <laughs> like. I want to go to Alamo. To- all right, I've caused a rift. I uh, like this. Good. This is it. I'm out. Jason, I want to meet at the Alamo Draft House and we will watch it live <laughs> and then we will go home and we will record and then we will watch it again and then we will record a second follow-up episode after watching it at home once or twice. I just wanted to make a bunch of money. Yeah. That's my big takeaway. That's my big takeaway from Yeah, but you have to feel good like that Kong and Godzilla made a ton of money, right? Like and this will be that to the nth degree. It made okay money, but like I mean box office yeah, like for Still, so many theaters are. We're still so in COVID. Restricted. I know, but that's my yeah. point. Is that like I think it? I I don't think the streaming is really going to help it make the money that it needs to make. And like Interstellar was like there was this concern that Interstellar was going to be like Inter- Interstellar only made only made 188 million mm-hmm. domestically, Domestic. yeah, uh, and like it was a 200 million dollar movie, and so like but it made like 800 or 700 something right overall. It made 700 worldwide, yeah. So it, it ended up being saved by the the international, but like you know I don't know what the international box office looks like in October. There's definitely parts of the world that don't look good right now, and so like you know, yeah. uh, I I don't know, I don't know, man. I want I want to make that money. Godzilla vs. Kong had the highest number of new signups for HBO Max. I think we're uh-huh. in a new world. Streaming is fine as long as everybody like, agrees. Don't talk to me about these like new sign-up stats. It's like some fucking Web two O <laughs> bullshit. Like, <laughs> like show you some, like you know, like oh, we All had right. so many people sign up. Fair, fair enough. And people canceled. <laughs> MG, who would Tilda Swinton play in your recast for Interstellar? You can choose one role. Oh. I think she would be good in the Anne Hathaway role. I think uh, mm, I think mm, Amelia would mm. be an interesting one. Um, she's obviously old, a little bit older than Anne Hathaway is, um, but maybe that's more age appropriate for Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, I don't know. She would be great as Brand. I think she would have a lot of heart. I like it. Yeah, Jason Tars. Yes, hundred percent would play. <laughs> oh, yes. that's good. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Good. Matt Damon. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Ooh. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be that would be really meaty. Yeah, that'd be good too. All right, uh, let's see. We have a couple of letters and then a couple of voicemails before we go off into this good night. God, this movie just looks good. I think. I think like my the reason I like this movie so much is that it just like. And how long? How long do you guys think it will hold up looking good? Right? Because like we all watch yeah. movies in the eighties now that look like shit. And like, how long will this actually look good? It looks as good as it. It looks. It looks better than now. Jurassic Park still looks great, right? Like yeah. I, I watched that in theaters when it was released, whenever that was a few years ago. And but even the re-release looked good. Mm. So much of it's not effects, right? I mean, it's like like to Matt's point, which I sort of like shit on. Like so much of it is like it, it isn't like CG. Like the like the stuff that looks good is like the like the lighting of the stuff in the cockpit and things like that. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. incidentally, they did a whole crazy thing to make that work. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff where they the way that worked was they were taking the computer generated generated images of space projecting them on screens outside the spaceship mm-hmm. set and then projecting so simultaneously like yeah, yeah exactly and then projecting them back onto the faces of the actors so that it like matched what they were seeing mm. so like none of that i mean like you know it's like that that stuff just looks fucking great like and like it's not like a cg effect it's not like a it's not like you know i mean the, the images themselves aren't computer generated but it's not like that is the big point of it i I like the interiors. It's like when you watch um, when you watch A New Hope, and everything looks spectacular ex- because it's so uh, physical, except mm-hmm. for Until, the bullshit that he added right. in the '90s. Yeah, the bullshit that he added. Yeah, uh, exactly. Which looks completely dated. Yeah, like Jabba and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. like oh, the fucking Jabba at Mos Eisley is a fucking. Get, get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. It's a tough one. All right, let me get some letters here. First one is from our dear friend, Patrick Lusk. Patrick, mm. thank you for, re, uh, for writing in to us again. Subject line, Lebowski. Hey, guys, nothing you need to read on the show here. We're reading it anyways. Just wanted to drop a quick note to let you know I'm continuing to enjoy the show. Dune Pod has become a highlight of my Monday morning. It's great. By the way, apologize for the overly long note last week on Tenet. I've been spoiled on the ASA shows that sometimes do three-hour listener feedback episodes. Wow. Jason, what that do you seems think? Like a lot. Three hour feedback? I appreciate people writing in. It means a lot to me that anyone <laughs> would listen to this and then say, like, you know what? I, I got to write these folks. So I, I appreciate people just taking the time to do it. I um, love it. And Matt Matt is a vicious editor and will cut out what's, what doesn't work. <laughs> Can I, and I know we're running long here. We're Can fine. I just tell you we're guys fine. how I watch Tenet? Um, yeah. So I have only seen Tenet because obviously we're in COVID and. and On a smart toilet? <laughs> yeah, as intended. <laughs> Almost as bad. I watched it in a, it was actually during the last sort of a lull in COVID. We did stay at a hotel one other time then. It's the only other time we stayed at a hotel. I mentioned earlier we did. Mm. And uh, we watched it on maybe uh, maybe an 18-inch screen. Um, and it was... Wow. Incomprehensible? I wish I wouldn't have watched it that way. Yeah. Let's just, let's just yeah. say it. Yeah, put it that way. Like, <laughs> And so I appreciated listening to your guys' pod on Tenet because like it actually illuminated a bunch of things. I've been waiting to watch it to see if I can watch it actually on the big screen again. I have it here. Yeah. And I can watch it like on, on the home screen, but I do want to see it actually in theaters. Yeah. Because um, yeah. it does seem like a visually stunning movie. 
It would benefit. It would benefit. Yeah. Yeah, it would benefit from actually going somewhere to see it. I saw it on yeah. theaters. Yeah, I saw it on theaters. It was really good. Whatever movie I first see in theaters ever, having not been to a theater in over a year, I think I'm just going to, like, lose my mind. I think I'll probably just, like, disassociate because I wouldn't have seen anything that large. What do you think the first one's going to be? What What is it? I don't know. I mean. I predict you fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Parents no, baby. I mean, it's also yeah. predicated on the. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We will see. We'll have a baby with us probably. So, like Black Widow, because that's going to be. I don't think so. Right? No, no. I think I'm going to yeah, be watching Black so. Widow at home. I don't even know what's coming out. I don't even know what movies are. I don't even know what movies are anymore. Bond is in November now, right? Yeah. Like, I definitely mm. want to see that. It might uh, be Dune. I might save myself for Dune. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Can't wait. Yeah. We're going to the Dune premiere. Yeah, we're going to the Dune premiere. So, uh, I think you guys have to. Yeah, <laughs> have that's to we have to yeah. we have to be invited, but we're gonna we're, we're gonna working on small details. Yeah. All right, Pat says I enjoyed Lebowski the one time I watched it, but it has never made it into my personal canon of cult classics. Some of the fan theories you talked about were fascinating, so I'm inspired to watch it again sometime. Thanks for the show. Cheers, Pat. Thanks, Pat. Pat, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate the uh, the the messages. Keep them coming. Second one is from Bryce Kelly. Bryce Kelly, Lion City. Yes. Uh, That's great. Let's see. Don't read this. S fell feel <laughs> in the below text. Sorry. I sent this from my phone. Okay. I don't know what that means, but hello, Dune podiatrists. Oh, that's good. I think my take on Interstellar was unfortunately influenced by its pre-release billing as some realistic dis- depiction of cosmology. Etc. For example, with Kip Thorne consulting and the much vaunted accretion disc, the actual movie then fell a little flat for me. So <laughs> the much vaunted accretion disc. That I love that. Dirty. I don't know yeah. what I don't know what marketing Bryce Kelly got about this movie <laughs> right. where it was just like Interstellar. There's an accretion <laughs> disc. Is there a Scientific American yeah. ads for this? Yeah, what is- <laughs> uh, accretion disc monthly. <laughs> Oh, you mean ADM? <laughs> I mean, I read it for the articles. I don't <laughs> so quick question for you all. Which science fiction work do you feel handles space and such the best? Uh, I mean, this one is pretty legit. Like, I, like just to be, I mean, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of backing material here. Um, so I, I, like, having read the Science of Interstellar book and, like, watched, like, some You read the Kip book? Thorn, yeah, I read the book. Damn. I mean, I skimmed the book. I read the book. There's a lot in the book I already knew, Matt. So I read the parts okay. of the book I didn't. I didn't know as well. Were pulsars covered? Pulsars aren't covered, really. Tachyons. Um, tachyons didn't come <laughs> up either. That I remember. Not a lot on subatomic particles. Generally, accretion discs. There's a lot on. You could get a lot of your accretion disc fix. Um, so I, I don't know what would compete with this uh, in terms of like. Uh, I mean, gravity seemed pretty good in terms yeah. of like a movie that was like meant to be like, okay, what yeah, would it be like if you're in a, a disaster? Yeah. What a cool movie. Holy cow. Yeah. I like that one. I don't know if I've ever desired to go see it again. Uh, no, it's one of those. Yeah. One and done. You see yeah. It and then but I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I need to watch Children of Men. You talked about 2001, obviously, is the pinnacle of like the art form of it. Uh Contact is, I love Contact, but it's like. Contact is really good. It's different vibe from this movie, but it's, uh, I don't know. There's similarities, like with the, I guess, from uh, mm-hmm. the Carl Sagan um, uh, uniting Kip Thorne and whatever else mm-hmm. you know, we talked about earlier down. That's such uh, a great call. Obviously. 
Good to go. <laughs> Good to go. I am okay to go. Okay to go. Okay to go. Um, it has the whole thing of, um, it, when I saw Contact, I was a militant atheist. I was raised as a fundamentalist Christian, hmm. but I had become a serious atheist. And then I saw Contact, and I was like, well, shit. Okay, now I have to be agnostic. Now what do I believe? Well, that's pretty profound. Do you follow Gary Busey's son, or isn't that who that is? Who's like, <laughs> he was. The, he, yes. Yeah, that was the militant vibe that he was going for. <laughs> Jake Busey. Also in Starship Troopers. It did stop me in my tracks, actually. Um, so that was that was kind of uh, an interesting experience. I mean, that's a pretty profound experience for a movie with Jake Busey. It was. I mean, I fell back to hardcore atheism again eventually. Right. Uh, I read Dawkins, but um, oh Jesus! But it 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 at least stopped me in my tracks. Bryce says, you were all wrong. The only good answer is Spaceballs. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Bryce Kelly uh, was the product manager on a software package called Aegis at one point in time. Every time Bryce Kelly r- writes in, I'm going to give new biographical nice. data about him. Nice. All right, here we go. Here's our voicemails. First voicemail. Doompod, it's Corey from Austin, Texas. I have to admit, I've been, uh, I've been unfaithful to Doompod. Then, uh, oh, we're doomed. I've been spending a lot of time with another pod recently. It's an old pod called Pod of Thunder, and it's a podcast that started in 2013 where these three guys go through every Kiss song ever recorded. So um, wow. I have still been nerding out, but just in a different way. also been watching a lot of like old Kiss interviews and uh, mm. old hair metal videos. Um, so... I've been eating up a lot of time doing that and not watching like Christopher Nolan films or, <laughs> you know, anything else in the uh, Doom Pod universe. So, Excalibur will bring him home. I'm not going to apologize because I am a man of my convictions and I'm, I'm standing by. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. <laughs> I just believe in pleasures. And I'm going to leave it at that. Wow. You, you guys get amazing messages. Yeah. Well, Corey's the best. What, what is the intention? And I will say that Doom Pod is one of my pleasures. Yeah. So I still listen to the show, even though I've been spending a lot of time with Gene and Paul and Ace and Peter and Eric and Eric and Bruce and all the other fools that have played in that band. Anyway, all right. This is like the library scene. Sorry to waste y'all's time, but, you know, I always like to check in. Later. Um, is he implying that you guys need to focus more on Doom than <laughs> no, uh, some no, of these no. tangential things, or what's what's the situation? Now Corey's down for whatever. That is that is for sure. I like I like MJ says it's like the library. See, <laughs> Corey's Corey's pushing on our book world tubes, <laughs> trying to get uh, trying to send us a message. Oh, okay, Gravity. so MG Corey Corey sends us a voicemail every single week. He is our he is our number he's our number one friend of the show. Okay, Corey's Corey's the only reason the pod exists. Okay. Good. Good. So uh, whatever he wants, we should do. We're, we're going to start covering Kiss now. All right, you guys should do a Kiss show. There's a there's an amazing interview. There's this famous interview between um, Terry Gross and Gene Simmons. We should we should talk about next week. Okay, so let's, let's do that. Let's cover that. All right, reminder. All right, here's our second right. voicemail. Hello, it's Boom again. Boom! Did you miss me? <laughs> I know it's only been a week, but I guess I already have FOMO. And Interstellar is one of my favorite movies. Yes. So I know you guys are obviously like heavy sci-fi um, people. For me, I like my sci-fi sappy, which is why I love Interstellar so much. Um, I love the idea 
of love being a quantifiable thing that will save us. I think it's so fun. Um, it's just such a fun thing to indulge in. And then it's like wrapped up in this epic sci-fi that looks stunning. Um, the music's amazing. I think it might be my favorite Zimmer ever. I know that's a big statement, mm. but it's true. Mm. Um, and I'd say my only qualm, the only thing I would change about it is I wasn't the biggest fan of Anne Hathaway's performance. I think she nice. camped it up a little bit too much. Yeah. Um, I think I would have liked to see someone a little bit more subtle in that role. Maybe a Lupita, maybe a Tilda. Mm. Um, oh. Or even potentially switching out Jessica Chastain's character and Anne Hathaway. Like switching those characters, I think, oh, would be a little bit more fitting. I don't know how you guys felt hmm. about it. Um Either way, I hope you had fun doing this episode, no matter what you think. And I'm excited to hear it. Ciao. Boom. Boom has a great, great podcasting voice. Wow, that was good. Yeah, that hit on a lot of our points. Yeah. Lupita, holy cow. I love that. That's good casting. I agree. There's another fun fact from the um, the featurettes of Anne Hathaway like sort of subtly bagging on having to do this movie a lot like yeah. where she's just like she's like yeah like you know so we did the we did the thing in the water and like um you know i was told my suit was going to be waterproof um and um it wasn't someone left the zipper down and so i froze <laughs> for most of the day which you know legitimately sucks but like most of her stories are like that which was just like it was such a pleasure to work on this movie i almost died like so anyway I don't know, maybe she sucks MG, we had uh, Boom last week on the on the pod to discuss Malcolm, Malcolm and Marie. Marie. I did. I listened to it. Yep. Oh, thank you. Did you watch it? Did you watch that movie? I have not watched it. No, I haven't watched the movie yet, but I did listen to the pod. Yeah. That's even that's even more important. You don't need to watch the movie that's if you right. listen to the it's podcast. That's right. It's covered. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. covered. All right. Final voicemail. We haven't heard this voice in a while. Tilda Swinton. Who would Tilda Swinton play? <laughs> Catcher. Hey guys, it's Catcher. Uh, I was hoping it was Catcher. I just created new theme music. That's great. Please don't ever use it again. Um, I was thinking, who would Tilda Swinton play? And then I was thinking, maybe Tars or whatever the other robot's called. Yes. And then yeah. I was like, no, nice. duh. It's Matt Damon's character. Mm. How much more shocking wow. would That's Interstellar great. have been? I remember the first time watching it and Matt Damon showed up. I was genuinely shook. It was such a great surprise. <laughs> um... But how much greater would that surprise have been is if you <laughs> opened up the, the life pod and inside was Tilda Swinton. <laughs> person's gotten a sex Just think about it. Amazing. Okay, I'll talk to you guys later. See you soon. Bye. <laughs> That's great. Catcher, we love you. Thank you so much. Matt, do you listen to these ahead of time? So you no. know that we were going to say no. what they... No. Wow. No. That's like a religious thing that Matt does. He doesn't listen to them. No, no. That's, wow. a, big, that's a big deal. We got we to gotta be live. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. Yeah. MG, what do you have to plug? Oh, um, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what are you excited about? Anything. What's going on? Tell tell. Like, what are you, what are you looking forward to? Uh, I'm excited about the world opening up again. I'm excited yeah. about potentially traveling or maybe traveling. The first- Where do you want to go? Like it, any, any areas? London. I think, you know, you know, we go, yeah. we go there all the time, my wife and I, and then the little one's been there a couple, three times actually, but not mm. obviously in the past year. So hoping for that sometime this summer, mm. I think we're actually going to do our first trip coming up this week uh, to LA now that we're vaccinated. Mm. Um, so that'll be good to see some of Megan's family. Nice. Uh, yeah. I'm honestly just looking forward to travel and looking forward to going back to a fucking movie theater. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't, 
I was trying to think of the last movie I've seen in a theater, both because of obviously the pandemic, but also because of child, you know, having mm-hmm. having a little one. Mm-hmm. I definitely recall very well seeing um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm. at, at Alamo. But I mean, that was a long time ago already. I'm trying to think if there's been anything more recently uh, that that stands out. And it's it's like it's sad, right, that that it's been so long. And so I am very much looking forward. All right, Jason, anything else? Final thoughts? This is a great movie. I was excited to talk about it. And I hope people uh, don't... You can fast forward through my um, half-remembered physics ramblings if that's not your cup of tea. Yeah, we'll be back next week uh, for Pulsar Talk from Pulsar Monthly. Big Pulsar Talk. (laughs) Yeah, big Pulsar Talk. (laughs) And that's it for this episode of Dune Pod. I want to thank Jason and MG for an amazing and enlightening conversation. Next week, John Borman's 1981 epic sword and sorcery film, Excalibur. This is a truly ambitious film with an insane cast, score, and special and practical effects. It's streaming for free on Tubi or available for rent on all the major platforms. If you're enjoying this podcast, follow us at DunePod on Instagram and Twitter and share our social media posts as it really helps new listeners find the show. DunePod is a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. The episode was produced and edited by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week.